execution is 99% of it. The idea is 1%. And so, and most of the time the idea changes as you go through. And so it's all about the execution. And so we, we make it really easy for decision makers to make, make decisions. So we, we, you know, maybe take a million different lines of data, but we'll show Doug, you know, two out of your athletes are, are unhealthy or four of your athletes out of 50 are ready to race in this race. And so there's so much data behind that. But, yeah, we'll show him one widget, one card, which gives him basically a green or red light. And so he doesn't have to look at all the data. He doesn't have to analyze it himself. We just say, yep, here's a dashboard. We built a platform that collected all of that data, analyzed that data, and basically fed him very key insights. It's overwhelming, all the data we collect right now. And actually, it's not about how much we have so much data. Actually, the, the, the value is in interpreting data or, or giving someone the ability to interpret data very easily and very quickly. And so we, we make it really easy for decision makers to make, make decisions. Welcome to the Get Invested podcast, where we share great conversations with experts from all walks of life to uncover their secret know-how and where they invest their time, their skills, and their money, and the benefits that this has created. You see, the truth is that everyone invests every minute of every day we're investing our time, our skills, our energy, and our money in something. Some of us are investing consciously, some unconsciously, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, and sometimes for no impact. Get Invested will help you to start living by design, not by default. I'm going to help you to make it happen, not let it happen. You'll hear the top tips on how you can live with conscious intent so that you can live more, work less, and leave a living legacy investing now. Listen to the show to discover the top tips on how to get started, make the most of your investment journey, and ultimately to be living your dream, not someone else's. More episodes can be found on iTunes or at bushymartin.com.au forward slash get invested. Thanks for listening. And now let's get invested. Hi, Freedom Fighters. Are you achieving peak performance and sustainable success in any and all areas of your life? How do you know? How are you achieving it? How do you transform your dreams into reality? And what separates the dreamers from the doers and the deliverers? How do you link you or your organisation's long-term individual and collective vision to what everyone is actually doing on a day-to-day basis. How do you know that the choices and actions that you're taking today are the best ones to achieve your lifestyle dreams or your organisation's success? And how are you measuring and tracking your progress? Is there a simple way to ensure that you're making the right things happen and not getting distracted on new shiny things that look exciting but aren't moving the needle most in relation to your ultimate goals? Well, today we help you answer these questions. And the answers are actually simpler than you think. But simple doesn't mean easy. Like anything worthwhile in life, it needs relentless collective commitment over time. Now, in recent episodes, we've been discussing peak performance and sustainable success. Episode 180 with Paul Ruse unpacked his approach from his book, Here It Is, that enabled him to take the bedraggled and betrodden Sydney Swans from the bottom of the barrel 
to win their first premiership in 72 years in just three seasons. And he did this as a coach using a very simple system that connects and commits everyone to that achievement. What I like to call big, hairy-ass goals. And earlier episodes have focused on establishing audacious moonshot visions that inspire and galvanise disparate individuals and teams to achieve great things. But how can we really do and achieve big things at our individual, team, business, organisational, community and even country level? And this is important because I believe that the future of our great planet is at a critical moment. Why do I say this? Because many of our leaders, big institutions and governments are failing us in our greatest time of need. Our individual and collective responses to the global pandemic are clear evidence of our reactive, piecemeal and dishevelled, divided approach built on the back of selfish and self-serving interests that lack a clear unified vision, lacks collective commitment and lacks personal and group accountability. So how do we turn this around? How do we correct these wrongs and choose the right course? Well, in my continued search for the essence of sustainable success that's achievable at every level, I've been focusing on those tribes and collectives that continuously achieve bigger and better things. What do the likes of Google, Intel, the Gates Foundation, Disney, Dropbox, LinkedIn, Slack, Spotify, and many current successful companies and organisations do that separates them from the pack and allows them to go from strength to strength while most and many organisations and governments continue to struggle. Now, we've all got ideas and dreams, but how many of us actually make them happen and continue to make them happen regardless of size, scale, situation or circumstance? The answer? Are you ready for it? It's establishing meaningful objectives and measurable results. <laughs> Whoopee-doo. Now that sounds simple and boring when I say it like that. But what does this really mean? And how can you apply an approach without complexity that allows you to set meaningful goals and objectives that are easily measured and monitored, that ensure that what you're doing day to day is contributing in the most impactful way to your big rocks? Now, I'm not talking here about the old conventional organisational goal setting and performance management systems that tend to be complex, retrospective, infrequent, backward-looking, top-down, hierarchical and highly administrative and ultimately not very effective. They get bogged down and lost in their implementation and end up being meaningless and time-consuming at best and end up being focused on the wrong things and measure the wrong things at worst, creating unwanted consequences like internal competitiveness and division, and limited progress towards or achievement of what really matters. What I'm talking about is the simple OKR framework, which stands for Objectives and Key Results. And this is best captured in John Dewar's book, Measure What Matters. 
that details an approach that is at the heart of the continued achievements of all the enduringly successful organisations that I spoke about earlier. Today, we're going to share with you what really makes a difference. That's what's crucial. How and why they set meaningful and audacious goals. The right goals for the right reasons. So let's dive into the mind of John Doerr. And his very appropriate surname pretty much sums it up. He's a doer, not just a dreamer. So what are these things called OKRs and how does it work? To help you get clarity on a simple but effective way to achieve any worthwhile goal, I'm going to draw directly on Doer's work from his book, some summaries and reviews produced by the productivity team and Nick Kettner, along with Doer's discussion with Donald Sowell, as well as Doer's TED Talk. Now, John Doer gleaned his inspiration for the creation of OKRs and Measure What Matters from the time he spent at Intel under the leadership of Andy Grove, who's been called the greatest manager of his or any other era. Andy once said to Doer, John, it almost doesn't matter what you know. Execution is what matters the most. It's all about excellent execution and measuring the right things. And so Andy invented a system called Objectives and Key Results, or OKRs, where he confirmed that the two key phrases of management by objective systems are the objectives and the key results. And they match the two purposes. The objective is the direction. The key results have to be measured. But at the end, you can look and without any argument you can say, did I do that or didn't I do that? Yes, no, simple. Objectives and key results, or OKRs, are a simple goal-setting system and they work for organisations, they work for teams and they even work for you as an individual. The objectives are the what you want to have accomplished. The key results are how you're going to get that done. Objectives, key results. What and how. But here's the truth. Many of us are setting goals wrong. And unfortunately, most of us are not setting goals at all. And then there's those organisations that set objectives and meet them. They ship their sales, they hit their revenue targets, they make their numbers, but they lack a sense of purpose to inspire their teams. So how do you get these goals the right way? First, you've got to answer the question, why? Why? Because truly transformational teams align their ambitions to their passion and to their purpose. And they develop a clear and compelling sense of why as captured by Simon Sinek in his famous book, Start With Why. And if you haven't read that yet, then make sure you do. Now, to illustrate the importance of your why, let's share Don Doerr's example of a remarkable entrepreneur that he worked with, and her name's Ginny Kim. Ginny runs a company called Noona. Noona's a healthcare data company. And when Noona was founded, they used data to serve the health needs of a lot of workers at large companies. And then, two years into the company's life, the federal government issued a proposal 
to build the first ever cloud database for Medicaid, which is a program that serves 70 million Americans. It serves their poor, their children, and their people with disabilities. Now, Nuna, at the time, was just 15 people, and this massive database had to be built in a year. And Nuna already had a whole set of commitments that they had to honour, and quite frankly, they weren't going to make much money on the project. This was one of those bet-your-company moments, and Ginny seized it. She jumped at the opportunity. She didn't flinch. Why? Well, it's a personal why. Ginny's younger brother, Kimong, has autism. And when he was just seven, he had his first grand mal seizure at Disneyland. He fell to the ground and he stopped breathing. Ginny's parents are Korean immigrants. They came to the country with limited resources, speaking little English... So it was up to Ginny to enrol her family in Medicaid. She was just nine years old. That moment defined her mission. And that mission became her company. And that company bid on, won and delivered on that contract. And in explaining Ginny's why, she said that Medicaid saved her family from bankruptcy. And today, it provides for Kimong's health and for millions of others. Nuna was Ginny's love letter to Medicaid. Every row of data is a life whose story deserves to be told with dignity. And Ginny's story tells us that a compelling sense of why can be the launch pad for our objectives. Remember, objectives are what we want to have accomplished. And objectives are significant. They're action-orientated, they're inspiring and they're a kind of vaccine against fuzzy, vague and unaccountable thinking. But OKRs just don't work for companies. They can help anyone and any organisation make massive impacts. Like the rock star Bono from U2, who John Doerr uses as a great example. Now, you'd think a rock star would be fairly unlikely to use objectives and key results. But for years... Bono has used OKRs to wage a global war against poverty poverty and disease. And his one foundation has focused on two really awesome, audacious objectives. The first is debt relief for the poorest countries in the world. And the second is universal access to anti-HIV drugs. Now, why are these good objectives? Well, let's go back to our OKR checklist. Are they significant? Yep. Concrete? Yep. Action-orientated? Hell yeah. Inspirational? Well, this is what Bono actually says about OKRs in his own musical words. And no, I'm not going to attempt the bad Irish accent. So you're passionate. How passionate? What actions does your passion lead you to do? If the heart doesn't find a perfect rhyme with the head, then your passion means nothing. The OKR framework cultivates the madness, the chemistry contained inside it. It gives us an environment for risk, for trust, where failing is not a fireable offence. And when you have that sort of structure and environment and the right people, magic is around the corner. (laughs) Now, how good is that? 
OKRs cultivate the madness and magic is right around the corner. That's awesome. So with Ginny's example, we've covered the whys and with Bono, the what's of goal setting. Now let's turn our attention to the hows. Remember, the hows are the key results. That's how we meet our objectives. And good results are specific and time-bound. They're aggressive but realistic. They're measurable and they're verifiable. Those are good key results. Now, way back in 1999, John Doerr introduced OKRs to Google's co-founders, Larry Page and Sergey Sergey Brin, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, when they were both just 24 years old and just starting out in their garage. And every quarter of every year since then, every Googler has written down their objectives and their key results. They've graded them and they've published them for everyone to see. And importantly, they're not used for bonuses or for promotions. They're used for a higher purpose, and that's to get collective commitment to truly stretch goals. As an example, in 2008, a Googler, Sundar Pinchai, took, out, took on an objective to build the best internet browser. He was very thoughtful about how he chose his key results. How do you measure the best browser? It could be ad clicks or engagement, but no. He said numbers of users, because users are going to decide if Chrome was going to be a great browser or not. So he had this one three-year-long objective, build the best browser. And then every year, he stuck to the same key results, numbers of users, but he upped the ante. In the first year, his goal was 20 million users, and he missed it. He got less than 10 million. In the second year, he raised the bar to 50 million and he got to 37 million users. Somewhat better. But in the third year, he upped the ante once more to 100 million. He launched an aggressive marketing campaign, broader distribution, improved the technology, and kaboom. He got 111 million users. And Sunder went on to become CEO of Google and Alphabet. Now, here's why I like this story. Not so much for the happy ending, but it shows someone carefully choosing the right objective and then sticking to it year after year after year. And remember that Dua taught OKRs to Google when it was just a 30-person company. And now Google's 80,000-plus employees continue to use the system to achieve bigger and better things. And everyday startups like MyFitnessPal and Zoom say that they wouldn't have survived if it wasn't for Doors OKR goal-setting system. In fact, Google's co-founder Larry Page is on record as saying that as much as he hates process, good ideas with great execution are how you make magic. And that's where OKRs come in. And the magic of OKRs is created by three main ingredients. So let me break down further how these three ingredients come together to create the OKR goal-setting system that, can, that you can use to bring your biggest ideas to life. 
Ingredient number one is an audacious objective. Now, as James Cameron, the director of the highest grossing films of all time, Avatar and Titanic says, if you set your goals ridiculously high and it's a failure, you'll still fail well above everyone else's successes. So the first step of the OKR system is to set an objective with the same spirit that JFK set the objective of going to the moon in the 1960s that we discussed previously in another episode. You'll remember that JFK didn't pick the audacious objective of going to the moon because it was easy. He picked it because it was hard. He picked it because that objective would serve to unify, galvanise, organise and measure the very best of the American people. To set a moonshot-like objective that's going to inspire you and force you to expand your skills, start by being idealistic, not realistic. Ask yourself questions like, if I were free from constraints and had unlimited resources, what change would I want to make in the world? Or if I had a unique opportunity to be the best in the world at one thing, what would that be? When you come up with your ideal objective, scale it back until it's one step short of being impossible. You want your goal to be big but believable. For example, when the Gates Foundation started, they had an objective of of eradicating malaria by 2015. But they soon realised that that was an impossible goal that actually demotivated the team. So they adjusted their objective to eradicate malaria by 2040. The goal was still big, but now it was believable. Now it inspired the team. So the first step you need to take in developing an OKR is creating a big, audacious objective that captures your imagination and compels you to grow. Now, OKR ingredient number two revolves around the quality and quantity of key results. John Doerr says objectives are the stuff of inspiration and far horizons, while key results are more earthbound and metric-driven. Your key results are the three to five things that you can improve that would indicate that you're getting closer to your objective. Key results are focused on things like customer satisfaction scores, and any other thing that would indicate progress that you can measure. Now, you may remember from episode 180 that Paul Ruse's objective was to win the Sydney Swans' first premiership in 72 years, a goal that seemed absolutely laughable at the time. And to achieve this, he analysed and defined the measurable key result areas that had the biggest impact on their success. These were clean ball handling of the ground balls, and effective tackling. These were the two closely guarded stats that guided their success for years to come, given their massive impact on winning games. Here's another example from Measure What Matters of weak, average and strong key results. Let's say that you and your race car team had the objective of winning the Grand Prix. Weak key results would be Increase lap speed and reduce pit stop time. Average key results would be increased average speed by 2% and reduced average pit stop time by one second. 
Now, these key results are better because they're specific and measurable, but strong key results would be increased average lap speed by 2%, reduced average pit stop time by one second, reduced pit stop errors by 50%, and practice pit stops one hour every day. These key results aren't just specific and measurable, they also contain a mix of quantity and quality key results to make sure the team isn't cutting corners to reach your objective. Think of key results as the gauges on the dashboard of your car that monitor how you're going on your journey to your objective destination. These gauges provide specific values that you can monitor and inform you if you're going to get to your destination on time. For your car to get to get you to the destination, you want to increase your speed while monitoring your revs per minute and your oil, oil temperature to make sure your motor won't break down while pursuing your objective. In this light, OKR ingredient number three is traffic light colour coding of regular OKR check-ins. Circling back to Bono's One Foundation that has actually helped deliver nearly $50 billion in funding for health initiatives across Africa. His organisation has been able to significantly reduce corruption across Africa and channel money from African oil reserves to fight extreme poverty. And in the book, Bono says that the OKR traffic light colour coding system has absolutely transformed the One Foundation's board meetings. They've sharpened their strategy their execution and their results. And they've made the One Foundation a more effective weapon in the fight against extreme poverty. The OKR traffic light colour coding system works a bit like this. On a regular basis, perhaps each week or month or quarter, you look at your key results and you label each one either green, yellow or red. Green means that you're 70 to 100% on target and you should simply keep doing what you're doing. Yellow means you're between 30 to 70% on target, and you need to develop a correction or recovery plan. And a red key result means you're only 0 to 30% on target, and you need to either develop a major recovery plan or replace that key result altogether. Let's take one of my current objectives of increasing the reach and message of the Get Invested podcast to over one million time poor hardworking professionals. To achieve this, one of my key results is to increase the number of new subscribers on my new Bushy Martin YouTube channel and increase them to a thousand in the next three months. Now there's only about 24 at the moment. And I've got to say, you could do me a massive favour to help, help make this happen by jumping on YouTube right now and subscribing to Bushy Martin where you can find every episode of Get Invested, along with my regular bush bites on all things property and finance. Now let's say that in a month I've only increased my YouTube subscribers by 100. So I'm only 10% of the way there, which is a code red. Clearly, I'd need to adjust my strategy and create a recovery plan that could involve making new types of videos or collaborating with other YouTube creators and leveraging into their audiences. Now, John Dewar says there's no need to hold stubbornly to an outdated projection. Just strike it off your list and move on, because our goals are servants to our purpose, not the other way around.
But here's a surprising thing about the traffic light colour coding system. If your key results are always green and you're approaching 100% complete, then you've done something wrong. At Intel, Dua says that if a department so much as approached 100%, it was presumed to be setting its sights way too low and there'd be hell to play. So if you're feeling and finding that it's easy to get all of your key results into the green zone, adjust their difficulty so you get a mix of green and yellow. By using this colour coding system, you're held accountable for both setting challenging goals and making progress on those goals. So if you want to accomplish something significant, something that matters, turn your goal into an audacious objective that actually inspires you. Then find a mix of three to five quality and quantity key results that you can actually measure. Then periodically apply traffic light colours to those key results to continuously challenge and hold yourself accountable. And make them public so everyone that's important to you is also aware of them. Now as an example, one of my current personal OKRs revolves around my love for music, piano and singing. Music is the greatest emotional engager and unifier that I know. Its vibration and energy brings your heart and head together and has the power to inspire, motivate and move mountains like nothing else that I know. Music can create and shift moods by the way it makes you feel. Music heals, transforms and helps us to imagine a better, brighter world. To experience and enjoy the full spectrum of our emotions from joy through to sorrow Music has the power to make me cry and laugh, to connect to life's experience in a a much more emotional way that brings richness and soul to the everyday and creates and anchors lasting memories. When I hear a piece of music, it takes me straight back to where I was and what I was doing when I first heard it. What about you? So my why is to move you with music. In this light, My music what objective is to create, perform and record a solo show that I'm calling Reflections by the 20th of December 2022, which at the moment's a bit over a year away. And my three how key results to make this happen are, one, finalise the song and piano instrumental list of 12 performance pieces by Friday the 17th of September. Secondly, to learn a new song or instrumental to performance level every three weeks. And thirdly, to perform a song or instrumental live on Facebook every month, starting from Wednesday the 29th of September. And now that I've stated them publicly, it's up to you to keep me accountable. And that's it. That's how simple OKRs can help you move the needle on your unfulfilled dreams. Now, the great book, Measure What Matters, also shows you how to utilise OKRs to improve the focus, the alignment and the accountability of yourself and your organisation so that you can achieve bigger and better things. Now, now that we understand how OKRs work and how to define and track progress, let's dive into the four superpowers of OKRs, and they are focus, Align, track and stretch. 
The real benefit of OKRs is in how they unlock opportunities for collaboration and transparency throughout your organisation. OKR superpower number one is focus and commitment to priorities. The simple structure of OKRs really empowers leaders to be able to clearly define actionable goals. So rather than setting lofty, vague or unattainable or unactionable goals, the OKR framework ensures you not only have to define the objective, but exactly how that objective is going to be achieved. OKR focus and commitment to priorities means that high-performance organisations are able to home in on work that's important and are equally clear on what doesn't matter. OKRs impel leaders to make hard choices and decisions. They're a precision communication tool for departments, teams and individual contributors. By dispelling confusion, OKRs give us the focus needed to win. So superpower number one is all about focus and getting very clear on the handful of objectives that are critical for you and your organisation. OKR superpower number two is to align and connect for teamwork. And this is where some of the real potential of OKRs really starts to become clear because there are a number of cloud-based OKR tools out there that really unlock transparency and collaboration within organisations. Some of them are Inspire, Week Done, Heartspace and Engagedly. Now at a glance with these OKR tools, you can see all of the OKRs within an organisation and every individual team member has their own list of OKRs showing the handful of things that they're focused on completing. So even the most junior member of an organisation can log on and see what everybody in the organisation is actually working on. And everybody's using this common protocol, so you can see what the CEO is focused on, you can see the top-line objectives and key results for the time period, be it by week, quarter, biannual or annual, and you can align what it is that you're working on as an individual or as a team leader or manager within the organisation with the mutually agreed top-level objectives. They unlock the ability for individual teams and managers to select their own objectives and key results that are going to help move the organisation forward. And of course, because it's transparent and everybody can see what everybody's working on, there's naturally built-in accountability. So this is a very powerful system for not only keeping everybody aligned, but for allowing everybody to figure out how to help move the organisation forward. In this way, OKR superpower number two allows you to align and connect for teamwork, as the OKR transparency means that everyone's goals from the CEO down are openly shared. Individuals link their objectives to the company's game plan, identify cross-dependencies and coordinate with other teams. By connecting each and every contributor to the organisation's success, top-down alignment brings meaning to work. And by deepening people's sense of ownership, bottom-up OKRs foster engagement and innovation. OKR superpower number three is to track for accountability. And building on what I just mentioned, OKRs are highly trackable because not only have you defined an objective, but you've defined very measurable key results. Using the traffic light colour-coded tracking, 
measures that I've already described, team members regularly meet to report on the scoring and the progress of, the, of their OKRs so that at a glance, everybody in, the, everybody in the company can see where teams might be falling behind, where they might be struggling, what's on track, and when there are opportunities to help. You can jump in because not only as a potential team member can you see that another team is struggling, but you can see that maybe your own project has a dependency there and you can jump in and help or if you have the relevant experience and expertise, even if it has nothing to do with what you're working on, if you see it's falling behind, you can jump in and help. So this is a very powerful system for not only managing accountability, but allowing team members to jump in and help each other when they recognise that something's falling behind. So OKR superpower number three means that tracking for accountability, OKRs are driven by relevant and meaningful data, which means measuring the right things rather than just measuring what can be measured. In this way, OKRs are animated by periodic check-ins, objective grading and continuous reassessment all in a spirit of no-judgment accountability. An endangered key result triggers action to get it back on track or to revise or replace it if it's warranted. Now, the final OKR superpower number four is to stretch for amazing. And the idea here is that it can be tempting when you're defining your OKRs to set your goals low because you want all of your OKRs to be on track. And you want to make sure that you achieve everything and you don't want other people in the organisation to see that your goals are consistently falling behind. So because of this temptation, part of the culture beyond OKRs is to stretch for some more challenging goals within your framework or what it is that you as a team member are attempting to achieve. And so for example, Google defines their OKRs under one of two categories – either committed goals or aspirational goals, also known as stretch goals. So every single OKR is defined as either being committed or aspirational. Now, committed goals are things that are tied to key critical aspects of the business. These specific OKRs are expected to be completed in full. You're expected to get 100% completion. And they should be marked green at the end of the reporting period, whether it be a quarter or the, whatever the agreed period of time is. But aspirational goals are very different. While you certainly want to set things that are achievable and have the potential to be completed, there can be as high as a 40% failure rate on aspirational KPRs. And so there's a lot more leeway and flexibility here. And teams are actually encouraged to push for these kinds of stretch goals to avoid teams being subtly incentivised to set very achievable goals. So you want to separate the two and have your committed goals and your more aspirational goals so that teams are given an opportunity to chase things that might not be so achievable but help to move the organisation forward. So when aspirational goals like this are chosen wisely, individuals are encouraged to take risks without fear of failure and the payoff can be massive. So OKR superpower four, to stretch for amazing, means that OKRs motivate us to excel by doing more than we thought possible. By testing our limits and affording the freedom to fail, they release our most creative, ambitious selves. 
Now, the failings of old, outdated and ineffective annual performance reviews have sparked a robust OKR alternative for continuous performance management. In response, John Dewar's book also introduces OKR's younger siblings, what he calls CFRs, which stands for Conversation, Feedback and Recognition. And they show how OKRs and CFRs can team up to lift leaders, contributors and organisations to a whole new level. And finally, OKRs are also a supportive tool in easing and expediting culture change and creating an open, transparent culture defined by personal and collective accountability. So OKRs make it easy for everyone in your organisation to look up, to look down and to look sideways, to see if you're aligned, to see if what you're working on is ultimately moving the organisation forward. And so, as the book describes, the accountability, transparency and actionable structure of OKRs is what makes this such an incredibly powerful system. You can see exactly what others are working on. They can see what you're working on. You can reduce redundancy. You can jump in when somebody needs help and their objective is falling behind. And everybody can help keep each other accountable. As you can hear, OKRs are a very simple protocol and framework for defining what it is that you want to achieve and how you're going to go about achieving it. They link your dreams of tomorrow with your choices and actions today. But as good as OKRs can be, their success lies in two very key things. Firstly, the quality of the objective, as we've already discussed, but as importantly, what you measure. And this is where the real challenge comes in. As we've discussed in previous episodes of Get Invested, adopting a purely logical, rational engineering style approach to measurement can dumb down the effectiveness of key results to what you can easily measure instead of what really needs to be measured. But the assumption of linear measures can also lead to limited linear results. Operating in our dynamic, radically uncertain and constantly changing environment, where we're now continuously drowned in a deluge of data and noise, can be complex, confusing and making it very difficult and extremely time-consuming to synthesise the gold from the dross and to join dots that we can't see but are actually very important to our insights and our understanding. We need to be measuring and interpreting the right thing at the right time in the right way. By synthesising the plethora of data points that technology now makes available in a quick, easy and effective way that collates and considers multi-dimensional measures and doesn't paralyse us in overwhelm. So the critical challenge for the success of OKRs is in deciding what and how to measure critical key results. What combination of data is required in order to define relevant measures and how we measure them. And how do we do this? Well, this is where today's guest, Ben Tripodi, comes in. Ben is the CEO and founder of the hugely and rapidly successful Lumen Group and Hope Startups, where Hope, which is H-O-A-P, stands for Human Optimization and Performance. 
Working closely alongside global professional sporting teams, as well as large private corporations, Ben's Lumen Sports and Hope, personal wellness teams, specialise in utilising big data and machine learning to revolutionise the way professional sporting teams monitor elite athletes, as well as corporations monitor all team members dynamically and instantly to inform and improve wellness, health, performance, leadership and decision making. Lumen Sports Arc is a sophisticated data visualisation tool that replaces old and outdated athlete management systems. Lumen Sports collaborates with professional sporting teams to give every decision maker the tools to interpret masses of complex team data. For a young startup business, Lumen boasts a healthy client list that includes world tour cycling teams, AFL teams, Olympic programs, and elite US National Collegiate Athletic Associations or NCAA Division I football teams. In a similar but broader-based corporate fashion, HOPE, or H-O-A-P, leverages big data and machine learning to provide effective physical, mental and emotional performance tools for you and your corporations of today to ensure that you become your best selves tomorrow. As software designed for the modern workforce, HOPE is pioneering performance well-being for teams and organisations of all sizes. And HOPE is the first tool to quantify well-being for leaders and to educate everyone to be their best selves. The Lumen Group's elite sport and organisational tools allow you to measure the right things rather than just what you can measure so that all of the dynamic data points can be combined quickly and easily to help you make better and faster decisions and benchmark your key results on the way to achieving your goals objectives. So, in our great conversation today, Ben unpacks human performance and data visualisation tools. We discuss how to achieve peak performance and the importance of measurement. He opens your ears to the challenges and risks of startups and what they entail. Ben reveals his relationship with money and how he embraced investing at a very young age. He paints a picture of his lifestyle vision and how he's investing to make it happen. He opens up on how he consistently able to overcome any fear of rejection, to approach anyone regardless of their power or position, in order to garner their support. And he shares how COVID totally disrupted his Lumen business and how he was able to pivot very quickly to leverage his sophisticated big data insight tools from elite sport to the world of corporate business where hope emerged to continue his considerable startup success. And everything that Ben and his Lumen Group does revolves around and supports peak performance and goal achievement by feeding into your OKRs or objectives and key results, by measuring what matters and giving you the ability to, to do this quickly and easily. To find out more about Lumen Sports or HOPE and how they can help you and your organisation achieve superior results, check them out at www lumensports.com that's l-u-m-i-n sports.com or hope that's www.hoap.com now as john doer of measure what measure matters in concludes countless individuals use objectives and key results to grow more disciplined in their thinking clearer in communication and more pers- purposeful in their action 
OKRs create acute focus, open sharing, exacting measurement, and a license to shoot for the moon. Where OKRs take root, merit trumps seniority. Leaders and managers become more valuable coaches, mentors, and architects. Actions and data speak much louder than words. In sum, objectives and key results are a potent, proven force for operating excellence. They've worked to help take Google to the stratosphere and and beyond over the last 20 years. So why not for you and your organisation? Now, Dua thinks of OKRs as transparent vessels that are made from the what's and the how's of your ambitions. What really matters is the why that you pour into those vessels. That's why we do our work. And let's be clear, OKRs are not a silver bullet. They're not going to be a substitute for strong culture or for strong leadership. But when those fundamentals are in place, they can take you to the mountaintop. So before we get into today's great conversation with Ben Trabodi on measuring what matters and what makes a difference, I want you to think about your life for a moment. Do you have the right metrics? Take time to write down your dreams, your vision and your values and cascade them down to your objectives and your key results. And do it today. It'll transform your life. And if you'd like some feedback on your vision and your OKRs, feel free to email them to me at bushy at knowhowproperty.com.au. And if you want to apply the OKR approach to investing in order to achieve and fund your ideal lifestyle goals, join me to complete your Freedom Flight Test and Ready, Able and Willing Raw Report Test that will help you to quantify where you're at, where you want to be, what's the gap, and what's your ability and best way of bridging it. It provides you with a GPS and a roadmap to ensure that what you're doing today is moving you towards your ideal lifestyle. To book your ticket or to find out more, just jump on knowhowproperty.com.au forward slash freedomfighters or just click the link in the show notes. Now, if we think of the world-changing goals of an Intel, of a Nuna, of a Bono and of Google, they're all remarkable. Intel's anywhere and everywhere computing. Nuna's affordable, high-quality healthcare for everyone. Bono, ending global poverty. And Google's access to all the world's information. They're all game-changing goals that are being achieved and powered by OKRs by measuring what matters. Now get inspired to start and achieve your unfulfilled goals and dreams by following the example of Ben Tripodi. Hi Freedom Fighters, now in our current constant connected and COVID challenged and radically changing interdependent global world that we're all living in, Achieving and sustaining peak performance in any endeavour across the the key pillars of what I call self-health and wealth is increasingly reliant on collecting and interpreting relevant data and information. But with the explosion in technology in recent times, we've shifted rapidly from no information to drowning in data. So how can we make sense of it all and draw quick, valuable insights from the masses of disparate and complex info without getting buried forever in endless analysis paralysis? Today we're going to find out 
by having a chat with leading performance technologist, Ben Tripodi. So welcome and let's get invested, Ben. Thanks, Bushy. Appreciate it, mate. Ben, um, uh, really looking forward to having a chat, mate. Uh, you're very well known in the, the startup world in Adelaide for doing some fantastic things, but the, there's going to be um, listeners uh, from around the globe tuning in here that, that won't have heard your story. So just to kick things off, mate, can you give us a rundown on who you are, what you do, and most importantly, why you do what you do? I like that last bit. That's good. I don't often get asked that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, my, I'm, I'm the CEO of, of the Lumen Group, um, which is essentially two brands, uh, Lumen Sports and uh, a, a new brand called Hope. Um, so the, the Lumen Group, Hope and Lumen Sports, exist to provide uh, effective physical and mental performance tools for humans of today so that they can be their best selves tomorrow. Um, and, and so what that is, it's where... A, we're a human performance company that is always striving to give people the tools, whether you're a professional athlete, an amateur athlete, um, an everyday person, a mum or dad, a business leader, building the tools so that everyone can improve to be their best selves. And um, yeah, we now work across professional and amateur sport, armed forces uh, and corporate as well. So work with such a variety of people um, uh, and, and who, who, use our, who use our software as well. Yeah, and why? Yeah, and why we do it? Yes, that's the interesting bit. <laughs> it's the and it's the cliche bit for me. You know, it's <laughs> it's uh, look. I like to think I'm making a positive difference in the world, but uh, in reality, it's it's it's. Um, I love uh, I love what I do. I love taking on really audacious things. Uh, I love human performance. I I like to think that there's so much untapped potential in people, um, and, and um, you know when we see that in athletes, and I get to see them kind of achieve their absolute success and 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 because i've i've seen that firsthand i I feel like everyday people can can really learn something from them as well so um i I, and i think i probably love in terms of being in a business i think i love being in control of building a vehicle that can create value for shareholders for customers for employees and and uh i think that's for me what i was kind of born to do and i don't think i could do anything else really yeah, interesting, and, and I'm going to dive into that because uh, I mean there aren't a lot of people that are uh, happy to to jump off the cliff like you have and, and repeatedly do that, uh, generally without a parachute. So uh, I'd love to um, to delve into that in a minute. But to, to start off mm. on that, can we sort of circle back to as as far back as you uh, would like to start, really, and talk us through what you've invested your time, your energy and your money in on your journey yep. so far, what have been the highs and the lows, what have you learned from all of that and how did that get you to where you are today? Yeah, wow. Uh, oh, it's a lot uh, in terms of, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still pretty young. Uh, it's only 28, uh, but I, I think sometimes that I'm going on 80. Um, <laughs> I did notice, uh, and I'll, I'll go back to the start, but I did notice in probably the last few years was this, almost like an exponential change in, in, in everything that in, in my thinking, my life and I guess maturity and, and and I see that in a lot of people as well, kind of, you know, twenty three. I kinda of see, you know, when you're sixteen you're kind of figuring out sixteen to eighteen you're figuring out what you want to do. Eighteen to twenty one you're you know, trying new things, doing what everyone tells you to do, go on the uni, so you do that. And then from about twenty one to twenty five, you go through this ultimate period of 
anxiety and and frustration because you're kind of doing things that someone's told you to do but you want to do other things and it's a real period of finding yourself and I feel like yeah 25 onwards you kind of a few things have gone right and you kind of double down and I've actually seen that across a lot of people in my network who go through it probably mainly males um who, who's really struggling those early, early early 20s and I think that's actually um just goes it's, I think it's just a it kind of sums up probably my period of time as well, um, which I'll dive into. So, I yeah, I was a, I was a junior triathlete um, who wanted to be a professional triathlete. So just, just you know, awesome place to start, mate. I'd, I'd mm. love to know why uh, your attraction even into uh, the world of uh, being a triathlete, because uh, for, mm. for that's again that would be very daunting for a lot of people, mate, and and and. Well, you you know it intimately. There'll be a lot of people that sort of have some idea. Talk to us about because I know how grueling a triathlete uh, athlon is. Talk to us mm. about what what that means and and why you were so uh, hell bent on on becoming a, a world champion in that. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, I was I was kind of a I guess. My family is probably more of a swimming family, so I was, I was always kind of involved in swimming, and, and I did lots of different sports when I was at school. But yeah, it was probably when I was about sixteen, I just became obsessed with with Ironman Hawaii. And um, for those of those listeners who don't know what a triathlon is, it's a swim, bike, and a run, um, and it's kind of broken up into a couple of different types of racing. You have Ironman racing, which is your big kind of um, you know three and a half k swim, one hundred and eighty k bike ride, and a marathon run. So big big stuff <laughs> then you kind of have uh anything in between to then a sprint distance which is uh you know 750 swim 20k bike ride and a 5k run so still an effort but that's what they call a sprint distance and they generally last for an hour or less whereas your ironmans are probably you know eight hours or, or longer so um yeah i was just hawaii ironman is probably the most famous triathlon uh in the world um and that is just uh you know they used to play it on the uh, channel nine wide world of sports and it was it was uh it was just really fascinating i just i was really obsessed with just seeing people kind of really push themselves and and um i don't know what it was i just i was drawn to endurance sports and i uh, started riding my bike a bit more when i was swimming and started running a bit more and then before you know it i, I went all in and uh you know bought the bike bought the gear it's not, it's not a cheap sport and um and, and just yeah and just I, I joined a club and started to love it more and more and more um and i probably did that for a significant period of time but when i first started it wasn't like i was doing ironmans um i did a couple of longer distance stuff when i was probably 18 um but it was actually the the shorter faster stuff that i loved at that stage and, and i loved the racing i loved competing i loved the training i loved the the, the i loved the discipline of the training um and it was always interesting because you'd always tell people how much training you do uh, and I wasn't a professional, so they always thought that was weird that I was training, you know, 30 hours a week. <laughs> but um, and I guess it was. But I was at uni, so I was I, I wasn't really doing much else. But it was for me, it was it was it's just what I did, and um, I actually really enjoyed the process. And then the more I enjoyed the process, the less I really cared about racing, and just it, it then became a, a part of my life. And and so as I uh, my goal was to become a professional, um, but then probably when I was about 21, uh, as I was getting better and better and kind of needed to take that next step into the pro ranks, I, I, I knew it wasn't for me. Um, well, I yeah, loved why? training. 
Why? What? Why? What? Take me to the, if you can, to the point mm. when you had that realization that mm, my my goal of becoming professional probably isn't going to happen. What What was it that brought you to that conclusion, and 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 how did you feel at that time? I can t- pinpoint the exact moment. Um, <laughs> I was, yeah, I reckon I was, yeah, probably twenty one, and it was I'd been training up, so I was a part of this kind of professional team. And uh, this big event in uh, Queensland on the Sunshine Coast uh, called the the Malulabar Triathlon, and that was probably the it's like the biggest race on our calendar. And it's basically, if you got top four, I think you got you automatically got a pro license. Um, and then if you got top ten, I think you could apply based on your time. Um, and so that was the goal. And so we're all going in to basically get get the pro license and, and start start our pro careers. Um, and uh, and we're kind of probably the last year where we kind of either had to do it or we didn't. And so lots of training went behind it. I was probably in the best shape of my life and um, I was racing. And halfway through the race, I just thought, I don't, I don't really want to do this anymore. And it was that exact moment. I remember I was, so it was a 40K bike ride and uh, we're out on the highway and it was pretty hot. And I was drinking some of my water. Um, and it was at that moment I just thought, you know what, this is, this is, this is not what I want to do. And it wasn't like a, a give up because this is too hard. It was actually like a really nice moment. I was actually like, I, I don't, I don't need to feel bad. I just, I'm going to enjoy this race and I'm going to finish it. But um, yeah, this would be my last race. And uh, I got to the end of it. it was ba- I ended up having a bad race, but it was, um, <laughs> I got to the end of it and I wasn't disappointed. And I knew that was the moment when it was probably time, time to pull up stumps and, and it's a huge time commitment and I always had a huge interest in business and, and uh, that's really where I wanted to go. Um, and okay, and, and just to give some background, at that time, I'd actually started my first business, which was um, importing carbon, carbon fiber cycling wheels and I was selling them and promoting them. And so I was actually, it was always involved in my sport and, and there was probably a year into that when I was, when I was like, nah, I, I do want to get more into that. And, and uh, I always train hard and I always be involved in the sport, but... Yeah, it was that moment I, I knew I wasn't going to do it and finished the race and had a beer and uh, that was pretty much it. I think I sold my bike after that. <laughs> yeah, love it. So uh, you, you mentioned that uh, when you were in the heat of that, you were at uni. Uh, what were you doing at uni? And, and again, you're going to get a lot, lot of why questions for me today. Uh, what were you doing love and it. why were you doing it? Yeah, so university, uh, I went to a, I went to school which was uh, very uh, – academic which is great and obviously there's this huge promotion to go to university and it's kind of that just that thing that, that you did um in hindsight I, I don't think i should have gone to university it didn't really bring much for me but um i was a pretty studious person like well, I, I wasn't, wasn't yeah why do you say that mate I, i'm really interested in that because you're right there's a almost an unwritten expectation uh yeah for, for a lot of aussies that you, you know you'd if you do well in high school, then you're going to go to uni. It's like that, that that's sort of the, the normal passage. Uh, mm. It's the same pathway I took uh, to do architecture and um, uh, exactly the same. It was just, just – I didn't think about it. I, I was going to uni. It's a matter of what I was going to do at uni. There, there, there was mm. no question about whether I should be going to uni or not. Uh, t- talk to me about that because I, I, I've had this conversation with my son. I said there's no point going to uni unless you're really clear on, on why you're going and where it's going to get you to. If you're just going to go along because that's the thing to do, then don't waste your time. Well, it's really interesting. and It's probably some of the thing, right? It's just what you did. And, I, and, I, and I, again, I went to a school which was a very good school and, I, and it's quite interesting because a lot of people's parents all owned businesses. And uh, so they were all 
reasonably well off, but it wasn't because they went to uni. It's because they created businesses, but they all told their kids to go to uni. And so I used to find that quite interesting and weird. But um, uh, yeah, it's just kind of the thing you did. Um, I, I, I actually um, graduated from school with a really high TR and, or ATAR. And, and again, it was a natural thing. I, I, I enjoyed health. I was doing triathlon at the time, so I thought, no, I need it. It was all around about, it was all, everything I wanted to do was about me being a better triathlete. So um, you know, it was about health and it was about, okay, well, you know, do I, do I become a doctor? Do I, um, it's funny, actually, I, I wanted to become a paramedic, which wasn't going to help my triathlon, but it was to do in health. And, um, and then I was like, maybe I want to do like uh, nuclear medicine, which is a uh, radiography. And it was kind of all about, I wanted to make money. So I was kind of looking at the things that made the most amount of money and, and, uh, but also involved in health and, uh, and then I realized with paramedics, there's only one employer, so I struck that off the list and <laughs> realized that, well, you're going to be a slave to the dollar for working for someone else your whole life. So then I was like, okay, okay well, I could build a medical practice if I if I did something else. Um, and then I was I kind of swapped. I, I entered a few degrees, got accepted, then I kind of denied it last minute. And I ended up settling on a health science degree which uh, as, as a nutritionist. So I majored in nutrition in a health science degree, and that was – I guess a bit of a cop-out in a way because um, I didn't, like I, I could have gone into multiple other degrees, but it was just a sign that I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so I just kind of settled on a pretty vague and generic degree, which in hindsight, like this is what I mean, like there's just probably no point in going. If that's what, if that's, you know, if, I think there was a sign, clear sign there that actually university wasn't for me and I could have, I should have taken a gap year or a couple of years off and then I may have founded what I wanted to do and, and gone back at that stage. Um, mm. But in saying that, university for me was the best thing for me in other ways. Um, I went to Flinders University where I went part-time at uni as well because, again, I wasn't really in a rush to finish because I didn't really want to be a nutritionist. And, um, and I was still racing at the time. But then Flinders University launched a program called a New Venture Institute which was uh, a pretty savvy thing for a university where you could actually do electives in business, um, but you could basically run your own business inside those electives and get credits for it. And they would kind of help you. And, and that was actually amazing for me. I did that and uh, I got exposed to a bunch of mentors, um, got exposed to a bunch of different business people and business leaders who, weren't, who were associated with the uni but weren't students or anything like that. And they were right. actually separate from the uni. Awesome. And actually, that was the best thing I got out of the university. So in hindsight, it was good for me to do it. Um, but my advice to others is, is if you, you know, if you want to be a doctor, go to university. If you, I don't know, if you want to be a business leader, that's probably, you'd, you'd better off spending that money on, I'm still paying off my hex debt, so <laughs> you'd probably better off spending that money on starting a business. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good call, very good call. Okay, so you... you um. You were doing the the degree, and and that uh, that the sort of new venture institute probably really uh, opened your eyes to the opportunity to start building a business. Given that were you already dabbling in the you talked about the carbon carbon cycle wheels that you were uh, selling. Did that happen before that, or did that come out of that equation? Yeah, it's always I kind of see my life in three different worlds. Like I always I was always doing some sort of sport to a pretty high level. Um, triathlon was most of that and at the same time I was, I was kind of doing all these things in parallel so I, my sport my triathlon career was going in one direction my university's degree was going in one direction and then I was always kind of had 
a degree of something to do with business or something to do with my own way uh, of either creating new products or, or, or creating businesses. And so I probably started from I was 16. I had a compression garment business. So it's all in sport. That kind of fizzled out. In fact, it's still going now actually, but it's um, um, I'm out of that. And then I kind of moved on to carbon fiber wheels, importing them, and then I moved on to actually trying to build them and, and, and engineer them in, in Adelaide. Um, and we actually had an amazing design. And that was what I did when I was at NVI. So it was kind of my triathlon career kind of finished when I hit NVI. My university degree was kind of ending when I went to NVI. And my business, I guess, endeavors had kind of uh, been redefined into this uh, more of this local um, engineering and design of wheels when I hit NVI as well. So it was kind of the culmination of I probably spent – that was probably what happened when I was about 23 – uh, and 22, 23, and it was kind of anything before then was I was trying lots of different things you know, across three different kind of channels, and and they all kind of came together um, at that at that, that that kind of junction. And um, yeah, the big thing was a company called Finch Composites, which was um, my business where we were trying to redesign carbon fiber cycling wheels to perform. Uh, better in crosswinds. So that was a huge issue for World Tour cyclists and Tour de France champions, and uh, as well as triathletes, where though the market, the industries were creating wheels that go very fast in a straight line, but you get one crosswind and they almost blow you off your bike. And we we're trying to, yeah, so, so we we're trying to create a wheel that um, would go fast in the front direction, but if you got hit by a crosswind, that'd be super stable. And um, that'd be that was going to be a challenging exercise to come up with something that would. Uh would work well where, where did they end up yeah so really interesting i learned a lot looking back it was you know so clear i knew where i could have taken it but then it was i just didn't know how to raise capital i didn't know how to have a strategy i didn't i just didn't really know everyone told me what to do and i but i just i couldn't see it and uh it was really interesting look, looking back in hindsight because i was, I was really confused at that stage because i I just I kept falling back on the idea. Well, I don't have any money, so how am I going to do it? And and looking back now, I just feel like that's such a stupid thing to say because you can get money from anywhere. But at the time, I just didn't know how. I hadn't seen it before. I didn't have the confidence to do it. And it was going to cost probably like I don't know, like a couple hundred thousand, right? Which now it doesn't seem that much because I've raised way more than that from this business I'm in now. But at the stay, it, it just you know, I just couldn't fathom it, and um, so kind of we got some really good designs, and they worked. Or on our, our our CFD, so computational fluid dynamics software that we're using, it was all all the numbers were looking good. We just we just never got them made. We went and got some prototypes done, and just cost too much money, and we kind of just shut up shop, which is quite disappointing. Um, but it probably went to show that I I wasn't super passionate about it. I think I wanted it to work, but I wasn't willing to you know, walk on fire to make it work. And I think that's the difference now with, with my business we're going a bit further about now is that I would do that, whereas I think you really have to want to do it. And, um, yeah, probably probably goes to show that I didn't. And, and so that was kind of – but I learned a lot. I learned – I built a huge network during that time. I got to meet lots of people who are involved in my life now and involved in my business endeavours now. And they were all – it was just this junction of my life where everything up to that point kind of was the first step to to my professional career. Okay. Um, Let's talk about that transition then because uh, hmm. you obviously got to a point where you sort of pretty much hit a wall with the uh, the carbon wheels exercise. 
Uh, yep. or, so you decided, look, I'm just not going to, that's it, I'm done, I can't get the money. Uh, what did you do then? Where did that lead you to? Yeah, so it led me to taking up a few different jobs. I just, just thought, okay, well, I'm just going to get a job now. And um, I kind of just would, I just, I did probably three different jobs, but it was all in different things. Like I went to work for one startup in, in health tech, which was, which was kind of cool. Um, did probably did that for six months to a year. Uh, probably not, probably yeah, only six months. Uh, and just kind of saw a pretty young founder. He had a bit of money he raised and he was doing some cool stuff in health and I was just kind of helping out there. I thought that's kind of cool. Um, and then kind of left that, though, that kind of fizzled out and then I went and worked for a creative agency where, which is really eye-opening for me. I was probably only there for a year, but I, I learned a lot um, about software and about, I guess, marketing. Uh, and I learned to work hard. It was a really good environment for, for young people to, to really kind of work hard. It was, it was a pretty high-pressure environment. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I was just still super active in the startup community and I was still just kind of just seeing whether I was still start keeping my relationships with all my mentors I was working with and, and I'd I still, I had a few connections in cycling just from my own sporting endeavors and I just kind of kept staying in touch with them and had a few um, world tour cycling teams who I'd meet up with when the Tour Down Under was on in Adelaide and um, yeah, I just started to, to build up more connections with them, I used to go for more bike rides with them and then it got to the point where, um, yeah, I had this idea where I wanted to create this this data visualization tool for professional sporting teams, and I just had a lot of mates in the network who were sports scientists, and they kept saying this one thing about, you know, there's just all these clunky s- systems out there, and we just need a better way to analyze and view this data. And for about two or three years, basically from Finch Composites, from that t- time on, when I was just kind of doing other jobs, that kind of that same problem kept coming up, and. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was you know in the creative agency we were kind of in more of that fan engagement space. Mm-hmm. Sporting teams kept on saying no, like that's all well and good, but actually this I don't know if you guys can do this, and, and we couldn't. Um, and then I, I I kind of left that business, and I, I didn't really have anything to do, and and I went and spoke to some of the just kind of went out to all my networks, and then uh, a guy called Doug Ryder, who's the team owner of uh, was Team Dimension Data at the time, which is a world tour professional cycling team, and. He basically said, hey, uh, if, uh, if you want to start building some of that tech for us, just, just let me know. Um, and I was like, sure, but, you know, don't have any money. He's like, oh, no worries, we can sort that out. And uh, he, he um, got his major sponsor, Dimension Data, to, to, to help fund uh, basically some, some upfront orders and, and, and pay for some work to be done and um, brought a team together and uh, <laughs> launched launched Lumen Sports, and that was three and a half years ago. So, Well, uh, let's jump right on that because uh, mm. that in itself, uh, for someone pretty much to come along with an open checkbook is what I'm hearing and say, we believe, on you, believe in you, uh, Ben, just get it done for us. Uh, that doesn't happen very easily or very often, mate. So I'd love for you to share what, what was it? Because you, you sort of seated in amongst what you've been talking about already is clearly you're a very good relationship builder and a very good relationship maintainer, which mm. which is you know in my own belief, uh, you know most of us doesn't matter what you're manufacturing, what business or what service you're in, we're all in the relationship business. So if you can't get the relationships right, then it's not likely to go very far. Uh, mm. But I'd love for you to talk through ha- how that came about and how. It, it, it sounds almost casual the way you described it. That Doug said, "Yeah, oh, yeah, this, yeah, 
we'll just get you to do it for us, mate. Uh, t- t- talk us through what gave him that confidence mm. to say, Ben, you're the man. Just get this done for us, mate. Yeah, so super interesting. So when I was working at the creative agency, um, yeah, we're doing, we're trying to start this kind of sports business and more of the sports marketing side. And, and so I was getting more involved in the sports industry, but kind of on my own bat, I just, at the two and under time, I just always made an effort um, outside of my work to just meet as many people as possible. And it was probably two years before this time, before that moment happened, was I emailed all the World Tour owners. Um, I reached, I just found all their email addresses online. I just, just kept trying. And so there's, I think, I don't know, 18 teams. So I reached out to 18 team owners and the only person that got back to me was Doug. And uh, he's, he said, uh, hey, Ben, you're sure? Like, I'm going to be down there. Let's go for a bike ride. And, uh, and, I, and I actually pitched him the idea. I was like, hey, like, I've got this idea for kind of this athlete wellbeing stuff and this, 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 this data, data visualization tools. What are your thoughts? He's like, yeah, that sounds good. Um, and so we went for a bike ride and his major sponsors were there. Who's <laughs> funny enough are actually some of my closest mates now. And they, um, we all went for a bike ride and I was super fit then cause I was still racing. So I was, um, uh, like I wasn't, uh, we went for a pretty big bike ride and I think they were probably impressed by that as well. I was like, Oh, okay. This guy's actually rides as well. And so, and this is actually, there's a little, probably a little key nugget in this and that. Um, one of the best things I've ever done is, is, and it helps that the industry I work in is in sport, endurance sports. But I was able to have conversations with, you know, in, in air quotes, important people because when you go on long bike rides, you build a tremendous relationship when you're suffering, you're hurting, you're five hours in. You go through a lot on one bike ride and there's not a lot of other people around who can ride with you. So you get this uninterrupted attention from the people you want to talk to. And then you get to the end of the bike ride and everyone is, you know, you talk about the moments of times, you know, you went up this big hill and it was really hard and, and you build this, this camaraderie that is so unique and so hard to do that you can't manufacture that in any other domain really unless you've gone through something together. Yep. And um, I found that was probably the best bike ride I ever went on because, you know, three of three of the most important people in my business career were all on that bike ride and I met them all at that stage. And um, so, yeah, we kind of, I built some rapport there which I wouldn't have been able to build anywhere else. Mm, and, uh, I, I, I just I want to uh, mm. really jump because I, I think you've raised a really good point there that you're, you're in the trenches together basically and mm. and in rarefied atmosphere because there aren't too many people that would be able to perform at the levels that you were performing at at that point in time. So the, yep. the, the level of respect uh, and mutual respect, uh, that, 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 that camaraderie that you – you've talked about and that, that we are we are some of the chosen few who are who are doing this would definitely build a level of uh, uh, engagement and connection that would be far and above anything that you would uh, and and it's physical as well so that there's something about the physicality of that rather than just sitting across a boardroom table and having a, a chat that would have uh, really got you all in the at, at a level where they're saying this guy's good uh, he understands what yeah. we're doing. He 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 can do it himself. Now we're ready to have a chat to him. And I think that and look and, and Doug Ryder was the type of guy who was just um, I don't know how to describe me. He's just a go getter, and, and he always gives someone an opportunity. And I think you know if I have to give a pat on my back to myself, is that I saw the opportunity and I kind of went for it, and, and nothing was too hard, and there was no it was super unorthodox. And I think that's the thing is that 
because I'd never gone, I, I just have never understood these professional or business ways of doing things, right? It's just kind of like everyone's just people. Yeah. And so I kind of just thought like, why wouldn't you go for a bike ride with someone and just kind of talk business? And um, But I think I think that was just a stage where he just got to know me, I got to know him and um, it was just, he was he was just one of those people who had humongous corporate networks and connections um, and he saw me as someone who was probably young and would actually get some stuff done if he if he kind of helped and he probably thought, okay, well, I don't have to, I just have to give this guy a chance and, and it's, uh, you know, it's not costing me anything and I like him and if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. So it kind of wasn't any skin off his back but he, um, and he probably saw it as a, a way to, you know, um, you know, get the team involved in some some some, some innovative things and, and that sort of thing. So I think he just liked being around people who were trying to have a crack because that's kind of what what, what he did as well. Yeah, I was going to say uh, his background was similar, was it? He, uh, I'm guessing he had a similar pathway and therefore, uh, and and clearly a pretty good reader of character uh, to say right, I, I I read the right things in Ben. Uh, I'm I'm confident that if we get behind him, he's going to produce a fruit. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. So. Uh, well, Doug's a way more accomplished person I ever will be, but he's he's he was an Olympian. Uh, he he was he's a salesperson. He can sell anything as well, and just a tremendous business networker as well. And, and he's just the guy who does whatever it takes to achieve his goal. And so his team is an incredible world tour team. In that they race for charity, so it's a it's you know it's Doug's team. So they're called Team Team Quebec and Next Tash at the moment. Um, but Quebec is a bike charity foundation out of Africa where they donate bikes to to these um, poorer communities because the bikes are a way for those communities to live their life and and transport is a, a big issue for them. And so when they when they have bikes given to them, it opens up the entire world. They can get to schools and universities easier. They can buy food and, and um, basically the wealth of their family increases when they have access to transport. Love and it. Love it bikes and so that's his mission he's just done whatever it takes and he's had some hard times where the team's gone almost almost bust but it always seems to just come back and and uh, make it happen so but yeah you know then that was so over over probably three years i just stayed in touch with them and we did do a bit of work with them in the company i was with some small projects here and there so you did get to see the way i worked as well in a professional setting um and then, and then I was always talking to him as mates as well to catch up every year and I got to know his his other networks as well. And, and that's so the combination of when I was like, hey, Doug, I'm actually look, I'm looking for some things to do for him was probably like, oh, okay, well, cool. Let's, uh, let's, do, let's do everything we've, we've, we've ever spoken about. So, so why didn't – why a question that would bring to mind, I guess, why didn't he employ you versus say, okay, we'll set up your own business and we'll, we'll buy the produce? Super interesting, right? And this is, uh, I've thought about this quite a bit in that there was lots of people who I kind of went to for jobs at that stage. I was like, okay, I'm, uh, I'm looking, I know what I want to do now. I want to be involved in sports technology. And that's why I left the other business. So like, no, I need to, like, I want to actually, I want to do something now. And I want to do something where I can build a career in. Yep. And, um, and so I was going around to a whole bunch of connections, a whole bunch of networks. And I kind of was asking for jobs and no one hired me. <laughs> and, um, it was kind of odd because I, I didn't really have any skill set and this is a really interesting thing in that I, I can understand why no one hired me because I, I just don't really, I'm not really a specialist in anything <laughs> and, um, you know, people are like, oh, you could be a salesperson. I was like, I don't, I don't want to be a salesperson. I don't think I'm a salesperson. I, I kind of think I'm just a, 
I just like to start things and, and I like to put value in. And, um, but everyone I went to, they all, there's probably two key people, um, a guy called Scott Gibson and Doug Ryder. So they were on that kind of team side. And then another guy called James Begley, who um, is now my business partner. Yeah. And I w- went to both of them because they were both in the sports world. I said, look, hey, can I work for you? And they're like, no, 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 I don't think you, I don't think you, you, know, you don't want a job. And uh, so I went, I <laughs> so went they, to Doug. They probably knew Sorry. you better than you knew you by the sounds of things, mate. They I could... think so. I think they just thought, hey, all you have to do is take a bloody risk and you'll be all right. Like I think they, they I was pretty risk adverse at that stage and pretty conservative. And Why? Just, Why were you uh, risk adverse? Well, I think I naturally am. And this is the interesting thing because I'm certainly not now. I, I, I feel risk and I feel fear, absolutely. But I, I don't worry about that stuff as much anymore. But was that from uh, your I guess upbringing? Because I, had, I mean, you're a good, uh, good Italian in, in Adelaide. I know a yeah. lot of hardworking Italians who, who you know, and they do very well on the on the sweat of their back. Uh, yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that, right? Because I think the whole reason I think the way I think is because of my family and that my whole life was, you know, at the dinner table, we always spoke about business. My dad was self-employed and he had had a bunch of different things. He'd traveled the world with, with businesses and... He was um, he's done a bunch of things. My mum was always pretty conservative. You know, she was a nurse, always believed in education and university. And that was the one rule in our household is, um, you know, because we all got dad's dad's kind of uh, business mindset in that we all wanted to take risks and do things. But um, you know, it was good because mum actually then said, "Well, you can go do that. Just get, just make sure that you go to uni first. And that was kind of the general acceptance in the household. And I was the youngest of four kids. Yeah, and that was. Okay, we can do it. We can take as many risks as we want. But we just have to get our degree first. And I actually, I think that was a, a good move. It was just a, probably mum's mum's little mum's little backup plan for all of us because <laughs> she, she she knew how she knew how scary and uncertain being in business is. And I think she probably just thought, okay, well, as long as my kids can fall back on something, then they can then they can take the risks. But you know, <laughs> growing up, it was interesting. Like my grandfather was he had a, he had a thumping business in real estate um, and. My whole family's basically in real estate, um, but I didn't want real be involved in real estate. And but just at dinner tables from a very young age, I, would, I remember taking my investment book. I used to write all my notes about it. this was when I was eight, and I'd be looking at, I'd be tracking stock prices and gold. I was obsessed with gold then, and uh, I'd take it to the family dinners, and and they would just, I remember just they would rip into me. I was like eight years old, and my grandfather about, no, nah, you haven't thought about this, you haven't thought about that. My uncle would get into me. My dad was always always really nice to me, but. They, but what I liked about it was is that they just didn't treat me like a kid. They were like, well, no, that, that's not going to work because of X, Y, Z. But look at this. And, and it was just kind of a, an environment where you got to just <laughs> – you got to learn. I learned a lot from a very young age just about business and how it works. Awesome. Um, because no one treated me like a kid. They just treated me like, well – Well, mate, I, I, I don't know of any eight-year-olds that walk around with an investment book, mate. What, what, what inspired – I'm really interested in that. What inspired you to even do that at that age, mate? Was it, I'm going to make money? I just want to make money and, gee whiz, uh, the stock market looks like it's the go. I'm, I'm going to start tracking that. I mean, at eight years of age, that's that's an investment book's generally the last thing I would uh, see most eight-year-olds put some energy into. Yeah, and it wasn't and it wasn't even like a um, – look, I, I, I still didn't really understand. I actually didn't understand it at all. I just knew <laughs> – I just kind of could – I could 
kind of put some dots together. I thought, okay, this is like, and I could under I was getting pocket money, and I was probably getting like I don't know, ten bucks a month or something. And, and I think because I I saw, and Dad would always keep me exposed to it. And I think he he was probably said, oh look, you know, Telstra stocks are like a dollar. And I probably thought, well, I've got ten dollars, I can buy ten Telstra stocks. And I think I probably did that at first. Whereas you know, a house was five hundred thousand dollars, so I was like, well, I can't I can't buy that with my pocket money. Yep. So I think it probably started like that. It was like, oh well, oh I can that I can buy that, and um and, and I I've just always loved business, and I don't it's got nothing to do with the money because I, I really don't care that much about money. It's just about I just love I love business. I love creating things. I love just you know simple profit and loss. You know, just I love those formulas. I love thinking about okay, well, you know. To be able to get that off the ground is going to cost me X, Y, Z. If I do that, then if you take a margin, oh, cool. Actually, that business might be worth something. <laughs> and um, But I think the gold is what got me because I used to be able to see, I used to track the gold price. It was, it was a simple thing for me to do because it, it was one asset and it would either go up or down every day. And so I think for me, I was like, oh, I could go buy some. And because I had enough money to buy gold because I think at that stage it was like $200 an ounce. Yeah. And I think I'd saved up a lot of money. This is probably more when I was about 10 I'd saved up enough money and I thought, this, and this is a really interesting moment in my life as well. Now, I think I could see that I could purchase that and I think that was the connection. I was like, oh, cool. Well, that's something I can purchase. And, and as I saw the price go up and down, I'd be like, oh, if I had that, my money would be going up and down too. Love it. But I remember, I remember I went to mum and dad and then I was like, I think I'm going to buy gold. And that was super supportive. They never lent me the money. And I remember, <laughs> I remember just looking back on this. I just remember thinking, oh, my dad, can you just, Give me the money. Like, no, if you want to do it, you you go put your pocket money into it. And I remember, I never, I never did it because I was I was too scared to, because I didn't want to lose my money. And um, I thought that was a really important lesson because if they had given me the money, I never would have learned that actually you do have to take a risk to make some money. And and um, I just lesson. yeah, remember this day that they just they just refused to give me the money. And I remember Great like, lesson. go buy with your own money. And yeah, um, I, I was brought up exactly the same way, and I'm exactly the same way with my son. I, my son. Uh, he doesn't do it anymore, but he used to come to me and say, Dad, I want this, I would, Dad, I want that. And I said, no, you can have it just as soon as you save up enough money to buy. <laughs> but I remember this fact in that because then the, the months, probably a year went and the gold price skyrocketed and I remember just being really disappointed and Dad being like, well, you know, you had that opportunity and you can still do it now and, and I just kept, <laughs> I kept missing it, but I, I would see it grow and I'd be like, oh, I just want to get back in, and, but I just still wouldn't do it. Yeah, <laughs> love it, mate. You, I, I, something you touched on in the, the conversation there is your grandfather and and quite a few of the family were heavily involved in property, uh, and mm. you, and you were very quick to say there's no way I was going to do that. Uh, talk to me about that. Because what, what, I, I was the same. My my father was in real estate, and I vowed and declared I would never uh, <laughs> follow his footsteps. Yet I've done a full circle and ended up back there, uh, and it's been very good to us. But uh, what, what were your feelings on yeah. that? Uh, interesting. It's really, uh, and, I, and I'm probably doing the same, probably coming as I get older, I, I realize the, the value of property in a way, but I just didn't get excited by it. I just thought it was a bit sort of boring. And, um, and, and I just thought it being, yeah, I just, I just didn't, uh, probably again, because I was too young, I didn't really ever think about owning a house. And I don't know, I just, it was just different. Whereas I felt like businesses was a bit more exciting. It's a very, it's a real life. It's you know, it's live. It changes every day. There's challenges, and I just probably was more. And so when I saw the stock market, I saw it as investing in lots of different businesses. I didn't see it as like putting my money into getting. It wasn't an investment. It was more. 
I'm buying a piece of that business and I almost felt a little bit of ownership of it. Yeah. Uh, and whereas we bought house property, I was like, well, I can't ever go to the house because we're going to make money from it. Someone's going to else is going to live there. And so I can't really tinker with it. I like it's it's got, and also I'd never had an income, and this is probably my one um, one tie up with property is I've never been one to want a wage or want an income. Yeah. And uh, I think for me. I always found, okay, as I got older and started to realize how to buy property, I thought, well, you know, you need to have an income to be able to buy property because the bank won't lend you the money. And uh, I just never wanted to be tied down by an income. And yeah. so yeah. for me, that was probably the thing. was like, well, I'm never going to be able to buy property because I'm never going to have an income because I'm going to make my money in other ways and it's going to be sporadic and I'm going to, you know, go probably more down the capital gains route. So yeah. that was probably why I never really bought into it. Um, yeah. And, uh, it makes sense. I, I mean, I, property is boring. I, I, I say to people, successful investment is the most boring thing you're ever going to do. There's nothing exciting <laughs> about it because uh, uh, you do your due diligence, you, you select the asset that you're going to put your money into and if it's good yep. enough, you're not going to be selling it anytime soon. So it, it's like watching paint dry or grass grow, mate. There's, um, and if it is exciting, then you're probably not making any money. So, uh, so what I love about what you're saying is because um, uh, the excitement of building a business, that will eventually fund value and income that you can then park in property and then you continue to build your business while, while your wealth is looking after itself. Well, uh, you hit nail on the head for me. So, then I've come full circle for the last couple of years. And I, so, I got married and, and my, my wife, well, we actually, uh, I've been with my partner from a very young age and that's, that's a huge, I think. A huge wealth builder in a way. Now you've had yeah. we've had two incomes since we were very young, yeah. and so we we're probably able to do things quicker than most as well in that. But you know, she was a she had a massive goal to buy buy a house, and that was a big dream for her. And um, you know, again, I didn't really have any, but I, I thought sure, I could happily have a house to live in. And um, now that I have one, I, I like tinkering and that sort of thing, which you can't do in a rental. But <laughs> for me, we ended up did we did buy a house, and we probably did buy it pretty early on, and. Um, and uh, then that was kind of then like, okay, we've got our house now. We're in property. Now I'm going to do the fun stuff. And it was kind of, yeah. you know, and, and, and I think from that stage, and I started the business the week the, the week of buying a house. So that was another reason why I probably had a bit of fear. But um, <laughs> now now that I've had an income and I, and I, get, I pay myself an income and now that I have more of a stable income, I, I do actually start to get more involved. Okay, well, maybe I could invest in that property. And that, but I, um, uh, I've, I've actually got a pretty strict plan around um you know stock stock portfolio and in etfs and yep. just doing a long term yep. you know every month put a bit of money in yep. um and and you're right that's just boring but it just works and you yep. get the compounding interest and yep. and look i'll probably do something similar with property in the future as well because it's the same sort of model but um but i get my excitement from my business now and if i didn't have my business and i had a day job that i didn't love i don't think i'd be be doing that because yeah. I'd want to be doing something I can get my excitement from. Yeah, I love it, mate. Now I've I've gone off on a massive tangent, sort of coming coming back to where we were uh, with the business side with Doug. Uh, mm. So talk to us about how that evolved. So he's giving yep. you the opportunity. He, my read of what you're saying is he said, "Okay, I I like your idea. Uh, mm-hmm. You set up a business to do that, and we'll be your first customer." which is yep. effectively going to fund you for a period. Uh, talk us through what that looked like and, and where it led to from there. Pretty much exactly right. So um, I think it was two and under, went bike riding, and I said, hey, Doug, uh, yeah, I'm keen to keen to do this. 
Um, and uh, um, basically, right, he said, uh, "Well, if you go, if you go, do, well, then uh, one of his one of his networks, Scott, who's now one of the investors in our business, who's been a huge mentor to me, he was one of the backers of Doug's team, yep. and I met him as well. And he said, look, if you can give me a business plan in the next 24 hours, I'll consider it.'" Love it. And so I remember, Love I, was, it. I remember I was down at my parents' holiday house and I just wasn't, you know, I was just working on this business plan the whole weekend and um, I said it to him and I went very detailed and, and, and I still didn't know, because I knew, I knew enough about business to create a business plan and some basic financials, but which is probably, still, Which yeah. is probably what Scott was trying to understand, whether you really understood the financials uh, to, to give him confidence to, to open the checkbook, mate. Yeah, and I think, and looking back at the financials, I was so wrong, but I think you're probably right. It was more like, okay, he's at least... He knows enough to be able to put it together, yeah. And um, and so I went with that. Then he goes, "Ah, oh, cool, yeah, let's do it." Um, and so he he funded it um, for the team. Basically, said, "Yep, the team will be the first client, but we'll pay you up front." And that was the biggest thing. So it's wow. like, look, even if you don't deliver it for another six months, like we understand you have to build the product, but I'm going to pay you now, so you can have some startup capital. You can go hire some people, and um, you know, I had a mate who was who I was who I was working with at the time, uh, Brian, who's CTO and he was my co-founder. So yeah, basically with that, I went to Ryan and said, "Hey mate, let's do it." Uh, he joined as my co-founder, and and um, I still had a bit of doubt then, though. And this is this is the, another pivotal point. Is so Scott had signed on, Doug had signed on. They said, "Yep, got some money for you." I had Ryan who was keen to jump in and be our technical co-founder. So we had everything we needed. And I remember going to to my mate James Begley, who probably a lot of people in Adelaide would know, but he's yep. who's now a co-founder of my business as well, but. I had a coffee with him, and he was. I went, I went to him for a job before as well. And this is this is kind of the coffee. I said to him, "Look, I've got this opportunity. This is the go, but I'm just not sure." Yeah, you know, and I had just bought a house the week before. And I was like, "I just, I don't know. I not think I'm sure, ready for the risk." And I was 23, just about to turn 24 at that time. And Beggs, who had gone through a lot of business heartache, had just, you know, just the most. Uh, uh, you know, just put so much in his business, invested a lot of money and time and energy, and he just went, "Mate, you're an idiot. You literally have." He'd be a looking at the client. mate. He'd be looking at you, shaking his head. I reckon, going, "What are you even talking to me for? I would kill for yeah. uh, the opportunity that's just been put on your table." Am I right? He's like, "You have a technical founder who is amazing. You have money." He's like, "What do you need?" And I was like, oh, "I don't know. I just, you know." And he's like, all right, well, I'll come in as well. I'll back you. I'll help you. And that's kind of all I needed. And, and uh, you know, from, and I, I, you know, I wanted him in the business too. So I kind of said, well, how about you come in? He's like, mate, if it, if it means that you're going to start it, yes, I'll join you. <laughs> and so kind of three of us kind of did, did it and got it done. And, and it's kind of all I needed was, was someone to almost just be like, it's going to be okay. And, um, and, and, uh, and the rest is history from then. And we it just has kind of gone from there. And, and, um, you know, it's only been three and a half years. It feels like a lot longer. But I think during that time, probably a year and a half after that, it was probably a clear def- defining point in, in the business career where I thought uh, it all kind of made sense to me. Like everything, the whole world kind of made sense in that, okay, actually there's the, the whole scared of money. Like I, I just don't see money as that anymore. And, and if, you know, or I needed to be able to see it work for me. I needed to see a risk pay off for me to almost see the light. And um, that was – so if Begs wasn't there, I'd probably 
still be trying to find a job working somewhere else. And, uh, <laughs> well, let, let's well, while you're talking about money, let's talk about your relationship with money because it's mm. it, it's it, it's a thing again. It's a mindset thing that can mm. make or break most people. Uh, it sounds yeah. like that the pennies drop for you over time, and you don't see it as such a mountain to overcome anymore. How how what was your uh, mindset on money, and 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 what is it now as a as a result of what you've been through? Yeah, so I've got a really I don't even know how to describe it, but my relationship with money is that I just don't even really care for it. I, I just don't have any feelings towards it. Um, I and 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 it's not like. I grew up in a poor household, like, you know, I grew up in a really good household where we had, we never went without, and uh, I don't want people thinking I came from a poor, like, it wasn't a, oh, you know, we were, you know, we were really tired with money, and so I always thought money was everything, it wasn't like that at all, I just, I don't know, I just always was probably pretty conservative with money, I never really wanted to spend too much, but I also never, re- I was never willing to invest it or risk it, I'd kind of just earn it and keep it, and I also wanted to do lots of things, and I, so I never really... I wanted to ride my bike. I wanted to do this, and I kept trying to do all these other businesses. And so I just thought, I don't want to take income because as soon as I take an income, <laughs> then I have to work for someone else. And so <laughs> I think I kind of just felt like, well, if I don't spend money, I don't have to earn money. And um, and then obviously, as I grew up and realised I have to pay the bills, it, it became. <laughs> and my wife now is was probably the first one to tell me to get a job. And I think that was when I was probably like, okay, I need it. I need to find something to be able to make enough money to earn an income, but I don't want the income to be my my. Uh, I don't want it to be my source of wealth. Yeah. Because I just saw it. I was like, well, I can only earn a maximum. Of, I, I don't even know what what. I don't know. Say like hundred k. I always thought would be the maximum amount of money I could ever make a year, and I thought. Well, that's. But what if I want to make a million dollars a year? Like it's just, I couldn't do it because I, I don't. There's not enough hours in the day. And I remember when I was at uni, I was, um, I was sitting on a hill after a class, and I, um, I was kind of just chilling out, having a coffee by myself, and, and I wrote down all the things I wanted in my life. Um, and and it's still pretty true now. Like I think I wanted a, a house, a nice house. I wanted a, like a holiday house, and I wanted some cars. And it was all materialistic things. And um, it's very interesting the way, I, like, as you grow up, you think differently. But I remember coming up with a number, and I needed $636,000 a year was the income I needed to make to get everything I wanted. And that was based on, yeah, how I could leverage that to get different loans and whatnot. And uh, I wrote that on my whiteboard. I was like, okay, that's my target. And and I remember trying to achieve that, and it just didn't make sense for me to have an income. I thought I could never earn that much money through an income. <laughs> And so then that's kind of the realization for me. I was like, all right, well, money, if I'm tired, to be able to earn that money, I can't have a job. And so then how else am I going to make money? Well, it's going to have to come from business, it's going to come from investments. And um, and so I think it was just, uh, that's kind of when I, I, I don't even know how to really describe this, but I think it was, that was when I kind of transitioned away from going, okay, well, um, you know, I need to kind of shake that, almost scared to lose money feeling and kind of go all in on how do I make money? How do I about actually make more money to be able to do these things and just not have to worry about earning a yearly income? And um, But it wasn't probably until my thoughts on money now is that it is it is just a scorecard. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean anything. Um, I have, you know, money is just a, an ability for you to do things in your life and, 
and half the time people want to be millionaires, but they can be they can live a millionaire lifestyle off of thirty grand a year. Yeah. Um, I got one of my very good mate of mine is is I admire him so much because he's a paramedic. He works part time and a good amount of money, but like yeah, part time wage, right? Yeah. And he's just lives so cheaply, but he works four days on and has like twelve days off. Yeah. And he's retired. And I remember we, I went surfing with him, and I remember this guy came up to him and his whole like, "Oh mate, you're too young to be, you know, why aren't you working and trying to you know, build your money?" He's like. Mate, I'm retired. And he's, he's, he was 26. He's like, I'm retired. I'm, I'm doing right now what everyone is working 50 years of their life to do. He's like, I've got a set. I live the perfect life. And you can't argue with that. And, um, and I just, I see him and I just go, that is, that is awesome because he's figured it out. Yeah. And, um, and so that's where I thought, okay, well, he doesn't need to be, he doesn't need to have millions in his bank account to be able to live that life. He's already living that life. And, and so that's when I thought, well, you know, it's actually got nothing to do with the money. You don't need a million dollars to do that. Um, it's just about what do you want to do and and um, and how you do it. So my ratio with money is, I love it. I think it's great. I think it's can be a source of positivity. It can be a source of, of, of bad things, but I think it's just a it's just a scorecard and allows you to do things. And um, but for me, I just love I love making it, and it's got nothing to do with actually using the money. It's just I love business and. And unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, is the scorecard of business is money. Yeah, and um, it's also and, the fuel. It's the fuel that uh, allows you to to build and add value. That's the that's the currency. That's, a good, that's actually a very good point. In that um, raising capital for me is such a it makes sense now to me. Whereas when I was probably young, I didn't understand it. But you know, if we're trying to build a business worth X, then if I'm raising X amount of money, but I'm going to use that and almost be the factory to make that become more money. Is that is a very simple formula, and um, yeah. and so then I don't get scared about very big numbers because like oh yeah it's going to cost me two million dollars but I'm going to turn that into fifteen million dollars yeah and it's just a simple formula but when you're younger you see a million dollars that's so much money but when you kind of see it black and white of like oh yeah well that's just it's just yeah yeah one plus two equals three kind of thing and and oh. then yeah you start seeing money as as building you know you need it to build more value and by building value you're helping more people and it doesn't really become about the numbers at all. Yeah, love it. Love it. So uh, just for the uh, listeners' benefit, uh, because my understanding is that Lumen and Hope are, are doing very well, just just put some colour around that because uh, mm. with, with some of the organisations and the elite sporting uh, teams, groups and whatnot that you're now working with, uh, can you just uh, put some shape yeah. around, uh, you know, since that initial seed funding from, from Doug and Co., uh, where is the business at now and, and what are you doing with who, where? Yeah. So, yeah, so Lumen Sports and Sports World is, um, you know, so I guess we're, we're, we're a tech startup. I guess we're probably just shrugging that startup-esque um, kind of phase in that we're starting to become what I'd say, you know, more of a, a solid business. Um, yeah, but as a tech company, we've relied on, I guess, raising capital to grow fast and I think that's a big thing in tech companies and, and software companies is that um, although they're highly profitable business models, um, you kind of have to grow very fast to build some market share yeah. um, and, and, and that costs money. And so it's acceptable to, I guess, lose money for probably a period of time, probably around five years, yeah. um, at, at which stage you then want to have some market share and then start to start to grow kind of on your own bat. And, and so 
as a company, uh, and software moves very fast, so you also have to continuously change it up and innovate, and it's a very fast-paced environment. So Luma Sports is all about interpreting complex athlete and team data uh, for decision-makers. So you know, the Dugs of the world, uh, he had probably 30 athletes with probably 30 different data points being collected on each athlete on, on any given day, uh, training session or race day. He wanted to know who his best riders were, who was his fittest riders, who he sends to races, where they're located around the world, so then who can, who's the quickest person to get to that race. And we, we built a platform that collected all of that data, analysed that data, and basically fed him very key insights because I think you mentioned in the opening is that it's overwhelming all the data we collect right now. And actually, it's not about how much we have so much data. Actually, the, the, the value is in interpreting data or, or giving someone the ability to interpret data very easily and very quickly. Yep. And that was kind of the key we did, we've done in sport. Um, and so we, we make it really easy for decision makers to make, make decisions. Uh, and it's, it, uh, without knowing the ins and outs of it, Ben, mm-hmm. uh, and, and a little bit that you've mentioned during your discussion, it's a, a visual dashboard is basically what you're talking about. So someone can look at it and go, right, uh, and, and go, this is where it's at. And, as, and because they can pick that very quickly, they can go, this is what we need to do. Is that, is that, am I reading that right? Absolutely. Yep. So we, we, you know, maybe take a million different lines of data, but we'll show, Doug, you know, two out of your athletes are, are unhealthy or four of your athletes out of 50 are ready to race in this race. And so there's so much data behind that. But yeah, we'll show him one widget, one card, which gives him basically a green or red light. Um, and so he doesn't have to look at all the data. He doesn't have to analyze it himself. We just say, yep, here's a dashboard. Go for these riders, not go for these riders. Um, and, and so, yeah, and that's, that's kind of our sports side of our platform. And then last year during COVID, COVID was pretty rough with us as well. And, you know, we lost a lot of clients. Obviously, the sporting team shut down. We're halfway through a capital raise and had a few investors pull out and it was, it was horrible. Horrible, actually. It must have been uh, very confronting, mate, because uh, you're, you're probably on the almost on the crest of a wave. I'm guessing the, the money coming in. You've got investors committed. You're you're ready to pull the trigger and put the foot <laughs> on the accelerator, and bang, COVID hits. Pretty much, yep. And then so we weren't able to close our capital raise because we hadn't reached the minimum, and uh, didn't have a lot of money left. And a lot of our investors were fantastic. You know, they're like, "Yep, yeah, cool, we're in. Just you know, start using the money in a way, and and kind of you know." figure it out and we extended the raise for another six months and but at the same time and this is this is the thing in hindsight right is everything happens for a reason and i do believe that because uh we had one of our major sponsors actually coming back is you know it was, it was basically you know from doug's team one of the sponsors from doug's team came to us and said look we've seen the work you've done with the team uh for athletes is this, can is there any way we could start tracking our employee well-being during covid when everyone's working from home and we're kind of like, yeah, yeah, I reckon we could. And we we're, we're desperate for any opportunity at our stage. So we, we kind of went, yeah, all right, we'll see what we can turn around in you know, a few weeks. And and that's kind of the start of what was Lumen Wellbeing at that stage. Yep. Um, and it was based on our sports platform. We rolled it out to probably 10 to 15 companies signed up as our early adopters, paid us for it. Uh, it was a shit product. It didn't really work. Like it, it did, but it just it didn't suit the market. It was very sports heavy. But... The, but the, the solution, and it, as in the problem was there and people were paying for the solution and we just knew that it needed to, you know, we needed to repurpose and purpose build a platform for corporates yeah. and, uh, and we'll be onto something. And so we did that. We raised money on the back of that 
um, then went basically into stealth mode, um, building that out for nine months. And we only launched Hope in March this year. And, and Hope is basically a software platform that quantifies well-being for decision makers of, of, of teams and organisations and, and essentially makes leaders great leaders. So we have essentially this, this smart ecosystem where not only are we looking after the employees' well-being um, and, and showing that to teams so they can improve different departments and understand what's going on, why some teams more stressed than others, why, you know, you try to catch things before they become big issues because obviously presenteeism and absenteeism in the workplace costs a lot of money and mm. not only is it the right thing to do. Um, but then how do we make those leaders actually be great leaders by feeding them the data at the exact time so they can make a decision and actually um, actually do good in the workplace. So an athlete may be trending low uh, for a particular wellbeing metric. We have this smart ecosystem that alerts leaders to say, hey, we think you should have a conversation with this person. Here's how you should do it and almost give them the skill set and make it as easy for them as possible because all they have to do is go, hey, Jack, how are you going? Is everything all right? Um, and then that then creates a conversation that all these issues come out of it and then they can make actual change. Can, yeah, and, I, um, I, I love this. I love this. Can, can you give me an example? So an mm-hmm. uh, example of some of the, the, the data measures or the data indicators. Talk me through what some of those might be. Can, and, and then what that tells the later and then, then what conversation they have. Can you sort of put, put a little example, paint that out for yeah. us? Yeah. So we have um, – so there's, there's two components to the platform. There's the employee app, which we call the talent app, so we call our employees talent. Um, and that is basically a tool which we've actually developed through all of our um, knowledge and experience in professional sport. And so that's all around that. One thing we've learned is that the world's highest performing teams – have the most well individuals in their teams. They have individuals who have high well-being. They are very self-aware. They know when they need to have rests. They know when they can push hard. And they also know they're also resilient. And so we, we learned that pretty early on. And so we're building all these tools based on some research, some, some evidence-based research from a guy called Professor Michael Kelman. And so around uh, well-being states and... Um, we transferred that into Hope, so we thought, okay, well, we need to build a tool for individual talent to be able to be uh, become more self-aware and understand the importance of self-awareness. Yep. And so the Hope mobile app is all around building self-awareness. We also need to inspire people to take care of their own well-being. And everything we do is performance well-being. It's not well-being, you know, to be happier or to be more joyful. It's actually to perform better in yep. your everyday life, not just as an employee, but in every aspect of your life. Yep. And so we have a slightly different start step. So the mobile app teaches individuals to become more self-aware. Yep. It then delivers inspirational content through high performers, you know, athletes, politicians, uh, in a very engaging way. So they have uh, some, a journey series which talks about their own well-being journey and how they deal with high-pressure situations. And the idea is that's meant to bring these high performers off the pedestal and say, oh, they're actually like me too. They still get anxious before a race. They still get you know, anxious before they go on stage. They deal with this. They've got wife and kids. And, and then we have the expert series, which is um, experts in our well-being states of emotional well-being, mental well-being, physical well-being, sleep well-being, and then more of a culture and, and leadership and work, workplace well-being. And they are a bit more long-form content where it's very engaging, high-quality content, and they basically uh, teach practical advice around those well-being states and how to improve them. Wow. We then have the leadership side of it is we're collecting a lot of that data and then we're basically just feeding it into some dashboards where it's almost a traffic light system where a, a leader can log on 
and yep. see instantly which departments are trending low, which individuals uh, are trending high or low as well. And so then they can have a conversation with those individuals when that happens. And then we also have the alerts. So you could be, you know, as a leader, you could be on your way on the train uh, into work and you'll get pinged saying, you know, uh, John uh, is trending low in, 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 well, in, in his mental well-being today, um, meaning he's stressed. Um, best you have a conversation first thing this morning. And here's, you know, instead of, instead of going and saying, hey, I saw your scores low, it's more of a, hey, here's a, here's a sentence to start the conversation. Hey, hey, hey John, how are you? How's, how's, how's everything going? And then, um, you know, from that point, hopefully a conversation starts. So it's all about giving them the tools to have those conversations. Dynamic. It's very dynamic rather than the, the three-month review when you sit down and have the sort of cursory chat. <laughs> Uh, you've, you're basically reading the pulse of the individual and then collectively the organisation uh, on the spot, which is... That's right. And we also learned that the best leaders already do that. Yeah. And so basically all we're doing is, is creating a, a smart ecosystem that mimics the best leaders in the world and the best leaders who get the best team performances. And we're trying to bring that into every team. Um, and and that's that's exactly what we're trying to do. Give them, make the same as our sports platform, make... Sure, they're interpreting the data best they can, so they they can then make a decision and be the best leader they can be. Spring, mate. Uh, let's let's talk about peak performance for a minute. Uh, how do you define peak performance, Ben? Yeah, um, don't know how I define it. I can, I know how I define it for myself, I guess. Um, so yeah, let's me, start there. It's um, I'm, I learned pretty early on that I need to be active and I need to exercise every single day. Um, to perform at my best, so that's something that I I just know I need to do. The days that I don't I don't exercise are the days that I just don't have a good day. Yeah. And and I and I'm pretty ruthless on this. When a lot of people say, oh, it's you know, when you have kids and when you get a family, you, you know, it's very selfish to go run. But I thought, well, no, it's actually the opposite in that. Yeah. Um, for me, that's how I, I'm a better person when I do that, and, and I'm very self-aware that I need to do that every morning yeah. and. Yeah. If I don't do that, I just don't perform in any aspect of my life. So uh, I'm a grumpy bastard if I don't. That's, that's <laughs> and 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 I've got, it's got to the point where my good wife Ben says you need to go and do some <laughs> exercise, and that's 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 code for saying you're a grumpy bastard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's so true, right? And and this is one thing that I and because I've done it from a young age as well. It's it's where I feel most comfortable. It's where I build my confidence from. Yeah, it, you know, it makes me happier. But it's also where I. I also build business networks out of that too, and all my best friends are, uh, are people I exercise with. And so it's it's got every aspect of my well-being. It's got my social well-being. It's got you know my physical well-being. It's got my mental well-being. I sleep better. It just has has every aspect of my well-being um, in one thing, and that is that is exercise, and generally followed by a coffee afterwards. So you, you get all that stuff. <laughs> you got the um, got it all covered there, mate. I love it. I love it. <laughs> So that's absolutely key for me. Um, and then um, uh, I, I do – that's probably just the, the foundation of, of any day. And then once, you, once, once you've done that, um, you, you can then tackle any issue that comes your way. I also, you know, play around with my diet a bit. Um, I go through all different, different ways, but I've kind of settled on something now a little bit more where I, I just eat less than I used to. And I think as I got older, I've realized I don't have to eat as much. And, and generally that makes me feel a bit sharper. I don't feel as sluggish and, and I feel like – Diet's a pretty key part of feeling good. Yeah. Um, and then I just one thing I always do is I always you know I don't I don't wear a suit or anything. I dress pretty casually, but 
even when during the work from home, I always will, will shower again for everyone does, but it's, it's more, I always take pride in, I guess, just uh, getting dressed. And I remember even when I work from home, I still go get dressed. And for yeah. me, that's the key. Like, cool, I'm crossing the line. I'm now working. Yeah. Um, and then once I'm working, I'm, I'm at work. Whereas I, I'm very, very clear cut with um, I'm at home and I'm relaxing and, and when I'm on and I'm, and I'm performing. It doesn't always mean that I'm, I stay focused, but I, I just, uh, I've just never really understood uh, well, not understood, but just for me, I, I, I do need to have very clear-cut lines with, with when I work and when I don't work or when I'm required to perform and not perform, um, and I protect that. Um, and then uh, I get lots of sleep, and um, I make sure before I go to bed, I, I do a stretch for probably half an hour, a um, bit of like a yoga slash meditation. It's a bit of a hybrid um, but for me, that's that's my winding down, and then, and then I read before I go to bed, and I have the best sleep ever. And um, now I wake up and do it all over again. But how for many, me, that's that's my my foundation. How many hours a, a night do you sleep, mate? Yeah, interesting actually. Probably, still probably not much. I probably only get six and a half hours, which is probably more than a lot of parents out there. But <laughs> um, I, I don't have kids or anything. But for me, that's probably what I need. I, I probably feel better on seven and a half to eight. That's probably what I actually need. But I, I can still perform pretty well on six and a half. Um, and but I nap a lot, uh, even the, even at the office. I go in and have a, have a fifteen minute nap, and that's that's kind of all I need. So do I. So I well, I, I do a, a couple of twenty minute meditations, some um, uh, beginning and end end of the day that just sort of calms the space but I yeah uh, very partial to it particularly the sort of mid-afternoon exercise I'll just grab a 10 or 15 minute nap and then I'm back on it and away we go how great is it it's I think it's, it's people will just have coffee and fast you know try to push through but it's 15 minutes out of your day or 20 minutes out of your day and you're just so much more productive so good it's so good mate I yeah uh, uh, some some people sort of dig me about it but uh, it's like well don't knock it until you try it uh, we, we've got the game, think, got this sort of blinkers on about how you have to go hard, you have to go all day. So you're right. You, people pump themselves up with caffeine and every other damn thing. But, but I think that's a, I think that's a key point you made then, right? Like peak performance performance for me is about output, and it's all about the output. And so I don't care if you have to work twenty hours a, a, a day to get that output, or you could you could be working two hours a day of actual work and still get the same output. It's all about the output. And, and so if you're having a rest for 20 minutes, some people might say that's lazy, it's like, but you'll, you'll output more than, than, than they potentially will because they're, they're, they're trying to power through for eight, nine hours. Totally agree, mate. 100% agree. <laughs> mate, uh, quick question. This is probably sounds a bit odd. Why hope? I mean, I, I can guess why hope because it gives you hope, but uh, H-O-A-P, how did you come up with yep. that tag? Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's probably the one time we actually got a proper agency involved to, to name it, but they were they were really good. So it actually stands for uh, human human optimization and performance. And so um, so yeah, it means that that's what we do. We uh, we're all about uh, optimizing human performance, and uh, also the hope brand's a little bit nicer and yeah, hopefully brings a bit of hope. hope, hope yeah, to it's good. Like it's, good. it's good playing yeah. words. I, I I love it because it, it does. It, it gives you hope about the future because you're able to monitor and know where you're at and therefore what you need to be doing to keep yourself on track. It's it's yeah, it's awesome, mate. Um, an area that I'd I'd love to dig into a little bit uh, as we sort of bring it to a close is is the whole startup challenge because. Mm-hmm. I mean, for listeners that have tuned in today and have had no exposure to the startup world, they go, well, how easy is that? 
if, mm. if, if we can, if, if Ben can do it, and he just puts it out there and someone throws some money at him where he goes, you and I know that that is not the case and that, that there's a, <laughs> a multitude of startups that don't get anywhere. Uh, I'd love you to talk through a couple of key aspects of that for me, if you don't mind. And, and you sort of yeah. touched on some of this, that the, the startup capital funding equation. I mean, you've, you've done it a number of times now. Can you talk us through what your approach has been to that and, 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 and how you've managed to actually get in a position where uh, investors are comfortable committing pretty sizable sums of money at, at what you're looking to build? Yeah, I think it's, you know, so many different aspects of, of all of this and, and I often find myself defending myself to people who probably don't really understand the startup space and that, you know, every single business in the world was once a startup and so it's not a new thing, you know, yeah, Apple was a startup, uh, Google was a startup, but even, you know, the local hardware store is a startup and so I think, um, you know, people see startups as being these big risky ventures um, but every single business is a startup. And so I think the difference is what people define as a startup now is probably more technology and probably fast growth. And so they see it as being this um, – so the startup world is all about – or the reason why people invest in startups is is the return on investment it can be quite high um, in that you can uh, – and generally they're business models that are very profitable. And I think a lot of people don't understand this because they always see that a lot of tech companies lose money but the actual business model behind it is incredibly profitable. Yeah. Um, they, they choose to, to, to lose money deliberately to gain market right share, sure. which, I'll, which, I'll ta- which I'll jump into in a moment on how that kind of works. Yeah. Pardon me. But um, that is, that is um, that's kind of the nuts and bolts of it is that they, they're these vehicles that can generate wealth very quickly when done right. And so that's why investors want to be involved in it because – they can put some money in and then within five years' time, they can have a significant increase in their, their investment um, just due to how fast these move. Yeah. But they, they take a lot of money to do. Yeah. And so, so they're, they're, they're kind of – they're black and white. They're not you, – you, some have self-funded and there's been some pretty good examples of people who have self-funded and bootstrapped a billion-dollar business, which is awesome to see. But majority of them are – uh, a core group of key founders who are technical, you have a combination of technical founders and, and market insiders generally. So investors want to see a good, strong technical team and they also want to see um, a team that really understands the market and the problem that they're trying to solve. Yeah. And that's kind of what they're investing in. And I think you know we mentioned this before the podcast in that execution is 99% of it. The idea is 1%. Yeah. And so and most of the time the idea changes as you go through. And so it's all about the execution. So... They're investing in teams. Generally, the investors who invest understand that any business, no matter how big, it's been started by people yep. and it all is it's just about people working together and if people have the attributes, so all the things that they look for, generally you know, hard work, um, resilient, um, kind of all in, you know, you barely find a startup founder who's not all in or you'll be able to see it very quickly yep. when, when, when they're not. Yeah. Um, so generally, it's it's kind of these passion projects of people's life's work are, are behind them, and so as an investor, why why wouldn't you jump in? Um, you know, generally investors, uh, there's multiple different types of investors, but the individual investors are generally ex-business people themselves, and so they kind of almost they've probably made a bit of money in their own environment, and they kind of understood how much fun it was, and they probably they kind of see it as a, you know. It's almost back to the starting point it's, for them. It's having their kids again, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, 
and they also understand it. They just understand how much value can be created in a quick period of time. So yep. to kind of quickly give a rundown on how, I guess, technology startups work in that, you know, we, we're not defined by a one-year P&L. And, you know, they're still instruments that we use to determine our growth and if we're moving in the right direction. But I think a lot of people get trapped into this notion of, well, you have to be profitable in three years because that's just what all small businesses do, right? And yep. I was having this discussion with someone else. I said, well, whoever said that, your financial records had to be in a 12 month. Why can't it be 10 years? Yeah. You know, why can't it, instead of a year, you work in a decade? And that's kind of what technology companies do. They know they need market share. So they choose to raise a significant amount of capital because if they can get to $100 million in rev and then they want to be profitable then, well, they can spit out $40 million a year in profit. Whereas if, they, if they're profitable at a million dollars in rev, well, they're only going to grow very, very small amount and yep. the amount of money they're actually going to be spitting out is very small. Yep. And so it's actually if you spend a lot of money to get to a very sizable um, size, then you can fl- flick the switch to profitability and uh, then it's a lot of profit and very valuable. And so investors know that they're in it for that kind of probably that decade. You want to, it's for more of a 10-year path, but yep. you know, if it works, the, 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 this extraordinary amount of wealth you can provide and and um, you can also go global very quickly and help a lot of people very quickly and your products can be used by, by all regions very quickly, which is something that is traditionally uh, been limited to a lot of, a lot of, a lot of businesses. Yeah, no, very well said. No, one of the uh, key skills that I, I hear from uh, our mutual friend, Andrew Montessi, that uh, you bring to the table <laughs> is that uh, you're one of those guys that's just not scared to hit anyone up. Uh, talk to us about about that in in the, the sort of the courage and conviction you have uh, in terms of just not being uh, scared to ask anyone anything. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's a like I'm no hero in terms of like I still get scared and I still feel like oh you know it'd be a bit embarrassing if if they if they were angry by me reaching out but then I just you kind of always come back to is like well I don't I don't like in a way like I'm not defined by what they think of me and if it just means that like what's the worst that can happen they say no then it was I was in, I'm in the same position I was in before I even thought about sending it so uh, for me it's it's just I've never understood why people wouldn't um, it is scary like I, cold calling people is really scary but you do it a couple of times and if you can take rejection then it doesn't really matter and I think that's the thing you have to have thick skin and but then you quickly realise that it just What's the worst that can happen? Someone just goes, oh. But actually, the worst that happens is those those people, the people you want to take notice of, you go, shit, that took balls for that person to do that. Okay. I might, you know, they're now on my radar. They may not do work with you or get what you want at that moment, but you're on their radar. Exactly. And the, the right people will, will think exactly that. If he's got the courage to do that, then that's a bit, bit of an indicator of other things for uh, the, the right people. No, I love that, mate. Um, mate, uh, we've only really scratched the surface today, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to park the conversation and come back to you at a later point to dig in a little bit deeper. Love uh, it. And I, and I think given the growth that, uh, that the Lumen Group and Hope are enjoying, uh, it would be good to track your uh, trajectory uh, by, by checking in again, uh, given you know, the massive moves that you're making in that space. But uh, what I'd love to do, mate, is shift into what I uh, affectionately refer to as the ambush series, which are the you know the, the typical podcast fast fast five. And uh, the first of those, mate, is what's your favourite quote and why? Uh, my favourite quote and why is probably a couple of things. Yeah. Um, 
I'm always very, very yeah. I couldn't come up with one, but for me, it's probably. Uh, I have so many different quotes, and all the guys around here and girls would pay me out about half the quotes that I make up and try to try to stick in the ground. But it's probably um, happiness is only real when shared with others. That's probably a big one. That um, and that was actually by I forgot his name. Some of McCandles. There's a really interesting story of he was kind of disheartened with the world and thought he would go to Alaska on his own and uh, he'd be happy there and, and then he'd end up dying from food poisoning and realised that actually you know, happiness is is actually only real when, when you share it with others. And yeah. uh, I thought that was pretty powerful. Very powerful. And then the other one was life is what happens when you're busy making other plans, which is a John Lennon one, which is yeah. so true. We're always in our head about strategy planning, strategy planning, but actually life is the stuff that actually happens when you're doing that. It's it's the it's the uh, it's the boring dinner meals when you're prepping dinner. It's the uh, you know the train rides into work. It's it's all of that, and that's it's actually so beautiful in its own its own way. And uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty magical. Spot on. It's certainly enjoy the enjoy the moment. You might be planning for the future, but you've got to be enjoying the moment. Otherwise, what are you what are you doing it for? Mm. Uh, lo- love that, mate. You probably are, from what you've said already, you're an avid reader. So, what would be the top book that you'd recommend uh, we have a read of and why? Yeah. I, I, Got a lot, um, but the number one book that I can stands out by far is called Shoe Dog, um, which is yeah. the founder of Nike. Nike, yeah. Um, yeah, we actually make every every employee that starts here um, gets a brand new coffee Shoe Dog on their desk on their first day. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I just think it's it's it just perfectly uh, <laughs> describes the startup journey and uh, yeah. everything about it. You know, the personal struggles, the business struggles, how unorthodox it is, and just how how un- how uncertain it is, and how it's not 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 linear, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, it's a great read, actually. I I love that book. Um, this one's a little bit left field, uh, Ben, but most <laughs> Aussies believe that they pay way too much tax. What's the top legal thing that you've done to minimise the tax that you pay? Yes, this is an interesting one, um, and maybe maybe this is maybe I've never probably really had a problem with paying tax because I probably never earn enough. <laughs> <laughs> But um, it's probably because, you know, I, I, I do, I don't, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I hold my investments for a long period of time um, and so I almost delay my tax. <laughs> um, yeah, for, yeah. I, don't, I haven't really had a sizable taxable event because I haven't had any, uh, uh, haven't had any capital gains or exits yet. So a lot of my wealth is tied up in things that are, are, um, are building more and more wealth and, and, and I think, um, and I try to reduce my income as much as possible and, and uh, because that's the thing that you get taxed the most on is your personal income. And so if I can reduce that as much as possible and actually generate wealth through other means, that's that's probably the way that I do it. Um, I'm almost just delaying delaying my tax rather than rather than reducing it. Well, and, the, and you're building wealth at the same time uh, and you're allowing, rather than hand over the cash to the tax office, you're, you're allowing it to exponentially grow in, in, in effectively reinvesting it by leaving it there. So, uh, and, and can I ask where are you? Where are you building that wealth? Yeah, so obviously my, my business in the Lumen Group is my my, my shares in that um, is I'm an employee of that of this business, but also a shareholder. Um, so I'm in control of building the value of, of my of my shares in that, and that's probably my biggest um, yeah. a biggest wealth. Like that, if that goes well, that that will be where most of my wealth comes from. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I do pay myself an income, and, and I do distribute portions of that into to ETFs mainly, so electronically traded funds, um, which uh, which I do on the stock market, and that's uh, just you, you, like you said, just the boring old 
every month, put a bit of money in into a low cost uh, yep. ETF uh, index fund, which just uh, tracks the average market returns of six to eleven percent. <laughs> and yep. you know, thirty years time, I'll, I'll I'll start using that. But you know, the reason I did that and not in my super fund is because, and I may be wrong with this, and it's certainly not financial advice. But <laughs> I feel like that's um, I can leverage off of that. So you know, yeah. it's still there. I don't ever have to take it out, but I can. Exactly, you can. Yeah, absolutely, you can. No, great thoughts and a and a great plan. Because what I love about the index fund side of things, very similar to property, if it's set up the right way, is it's it's pretty much set and forget. You just get it get out of the road and let it let it do its thing while you focus on building your business. So yep. uh, that that's awesome. Uh, while we're on the investment subject, what's the worst and the best piece of an investment advice that you've received today? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Like. The worst, the worst in piece of investment advice for me is probably haven't really had any. It's probably because I probably don't listen to people who, you know, the worst advice probably comes from people who don't really get it and I probably don't really take their thoughts seriously anyway. And then the ones that I do take seriously, I'd probably have a really strong discussion with them about it and get to, get to a point. So I wouldn't say I really had too much worse, probably... Yeah, I don't know. I don't really have many people tell me tell me investment yeah. advice. But what, what, what about the best? The best is, um, yeah, it's probably probably, and this is a little bit left of field, but uh, was when James Begley told me to to stop being uh, an, an idiot and go go in on, and start my own business. Um, yeah. I think that was something. Yeah, don't don't take the easy option of getting an income. Actually. Take take the risk and, and start your own business because that is single handedly has changed my life and and has single handedly been my ability to generate the most amount of wealth that I'd never be able to create anywhere else and again I haven't got anything yet from it and it's still a long way to go but that is the ability to generate your own wealth in your own business is it, it, it just far exceeds anything you can do without without that vehicle. Totally agree. Yeah, one hundred percent. Final one on the the fast five. What's a a personal habit? Uh, that you believe contributes most to your success today? Yeah, for me, it's the exercise. It's um, uh, every a- aspect of my life improves when um, when I when I have structured training and exercise in my life, and and uh, I, 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 I I like to think I still try to train like a pro athlete in a way, and, and um, for me, that's 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 so vital to everything I do in my life. Yeah, yeah. What uh, given your you know sort of past interest and exposure in the, you know the triathlons is, is that the work that you're still doing what what what's your structured training look like now what are you doing yeah so i'm only just run now um and and i still try to um, i try to set myself goals uh, i do one ultra marathon every year and then i try to do some smaller smaller kind of shorter runs i like to do the park run every saturday which for me is just such a cool thing it's a 5k yeah. community event and it's you get a group of guys that they like to race, so, but there's no, it's all fun and games, but you know, it's just, I love that. I love competing and racing still. So mainly just running now and I, and I surf a little bit, but it's mainly running. Surfing's been a new thing for me, which has been cool to learn, learn a new skill and learn a new hobby, but yeah. running and it's just uh, doing my usual one speed set, uh, probably two speed sets, one long distance set and some easy runs in between and all my best mates run. So I get to hang out with them and we get to do some old, uh, some old sessions we used to do back in the heyday and it's, Fun. Love it. Love it, mate. Uh, final question then. If I gave you a microphone that spoke to every single one of the 7.7 billion odd people that are alive mm. in the world and gave you a minute to talk, what would you say? 
Yeah, so this is a really interesting one. Um, look, I, I think for me, it's um, actually yeah. It's, for me, I, I, this is the the thing that occurred in my life, which has completely changed the way I think about everything. Is that um, every single per, every single thing that is built, being built in this world has been built by people. And um, when you realise that there's no experts, no one was an expert. They were just a person who became an expert, who had been able to do things, and people have backed them. And when you realise that every little, every business, a, a table, a computer, um, everything has been built by people. And and uh, when it kind of clicks, it's it, it's hard to understand it. But when you when you when it clicks and it, you kind of realise that people are backing you to do things, it becomes very clear that. Um, everything is possible you realize that everyone has their own fears and anxieties and joys and and you just realize how obtainable everything is in the world and um and so that would probably be the number one is that everything in this world is built by people and i think a lot of people think that they can't do something because um because it's been built built by someone who's smarter and stronger and better than they are have more access to money than they do but at the end of the day everyone is just people and and so everyone's a, uh, has the same opportunity to, to achieve greatness, and um, yeah, that's probably it. Well, uh, and it's it, uh, you're saying that very well. It, it's it's and as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, it's just not being scared to have a crack. Mm. That's that's what it boils down to because uh, it doesn't have to be the best idea or the newest idea or the greatest innovation either. But if you if you've got the persistence and the the passion to see it through, it's that passion. That other people will see that they'll get behind you and, and help you make it happen. Well, there's probably something on that just as well. And that you know, I know it's just a, a, a sixty second uh, billboard, but uh, you know, if I had two minutes, I'd probably then also <laughs> say that you know, tell everyone your goals and ambitions because everyone's too busy with their own stuff to care about stealing anything that you've said. Um, but it's most of the time is actually if you talk about your ambitions, you talk about your goals. Firstly, it keeps you accountable. But it actually, um, you know, people want to help and, and, and they actually will go, oh, that's kind of cool. Oh, yeah, I'll help you for that. And then you get this galvanization of momentum behind you because people are supporting you. The more people support you and then, yeah, when you tell everyone everything you want to achieve, it, uh, you're opening yourself up to, for people to help you achieve that. Love it, mate. That's absolutely true. And how many people keep things to themselves because they're fearful that they'll either be laughed at, scorned or, or someone will think it's stupid rather mm. than just put it out there and and by by putting it out there you attract the the people who believe what you believe and and once you've got that tribe together then you can move mountains there's no question about it mate uh really love the chat you've got a lot of energy and a lot lot to uh, contribute i'm looking forward to getting you back on to as i say track the trajectory of and the success that you'll continue to have with uh, the Lumen group and hope and really appreciate you spending time on Getting Better today. Thanks, mate. Really appreciate it. And thanks so much for the uh, the opportunity to talk because I, I can talk. <laughs> <laughs> you do it very well, mate. It's worth listening to. So appreciate your time. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. Get a summary of all this investment gold in the show notes. Just email me on hello at khgroup.com.au. It's H-E-L-L-O at khgroup.com.au. Or check us out at www.bushymartin.com.au forward slash get invested. I look forward to joining you next week for another episode of the Get Invested podcast. So thanks for listening. And as always, dream as if you'll live forever and live as if you'll die forever.